to an all-new episode of Palace Off the Top Rope. Thank you so much for joining me, ladies and gentlemen. And on deck for today's episode, it's going to be a top 10 of everything as we wrap up the year 2021. You're going to get my top 10 favorite movies of the year, top 10 favorite wrestling matches, top 10 all things pop culture, just a lot of stuff that happened this year. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty productive year in, in, in pop culture entertainment. Um, we'll get to all that. Uh, I'll go on my opening rant just a little bit or opening victory lap, I should say. But a couple of things first. Uh, first of all, scheduling conflicts um, and stuff going on right now. Uh, I was supposed to do a couple of episodes already of the SM football marks that we've missed out on. So if you haven't seen that, uh, there's been uh, my co-host, Abraham Trevino, has been a little under the weather. So there's been some, uh, you know, um, his health is, of course, the most important thing over the show. So uh, if you're listening to this, buddy, hope you feel better. Um, plus, it's been like a pretty bad two weeks of football for my team. So I'm kind of OK with not talking about the NFL right now. But we'll be back uh, as the season is starting to wind down and, and we get ready for the NFL playoffs so don't worry the show is going to be coming back um but uh first we want Abe to get, uh, feel better from being under the weather so there's that um I was supposed to return to my 90s films turns 30 series with a couple of movies uh and I recorded uh a double episode but when I recorded my episode with um Abraham Trevino a lot of my information got deleted for some reason and that included those episodes that I did for for that spinoff series as well. So I fell behind on that. I still have my special guest that that I w- I'm gonna have come on for one of the movies that I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna I'll probably make that season finale for that for that spinoff series, and then start off strong again in 2022. Again, it's been a a real crazy time with with you know work and all that stuff. As you know, uh, Spider Man No Way Home is in theaters now, and it, it was just the craziest time for us. Uh, this past weekend at work. And let me segue into that. So I, I updated you on all that stuff. Don't worry. There's still episodes of the SM Football Marks coming. And then, of course, uh, my special guest for the season finale of the season two spinoff series of the 90s films turns 30. So that'll be coming. But I want to take my victory lap because this weekend, as I said, No Way Home, exclusively in theaters, not on streaming or anywhere else. Where are people going to come out? We still are in a pandemic. We are still dealing with different variants for some reason coming out. It seems like a new one every single week. But that did not matter this weekend as the entire world was out to see Spider-Man No Way Home. And it smashed records, pandemic or non-pandemic. So the final tally for No Way Home this past weekend, its opening box office numbers came in at a whopping 260 million and i mentioned victory lap because that's gonna go to moi right here i predicted that right on the dot and everyone's gonna call bullshit on me they're gonna call me a liar but i can tell you you can go back to the previous episode of this podcast which i published last week and i said that that's what this movie was going to make i think everybody was downplaying that this was going to be the biggest movie since i believe avengers Endgame, just because of all the pre-sale hype all the hype leading up to the movie and all the speculation on rumors of who's going to come out and whatnot. And I'm not going to dive into any of that. I've seen the movie, uh, but I'm going to go into that with Brandon McLaughlin next week on an episode. We're going to deep dive into everything Spider-Man No Way Home. So be on the lookout for that. But yes, all of the lead up to that, there was just in the makings of 
just this huge opening and everybody wanting to see it opening weekend. So there you have it, 260 million people who proclaimed the movie theater industry dying. I had my doubts last year during the pandemic while we were at it like fully, like strong with it, even though we're still in it. But uh, I, I, I've got a lot more optimism now after this past weekend. And not to say that, you know, not to play it safe out there, you know, as far as like social distancing and, and all that stuff. But, uh, people are still coming out, man. There's still an appetite for, and, and it's a thing. And I hope Disney and everybody else at Marvel took this as a real lesson. It's like, imagine if Spider-Man had been on streaming, like we wouldn't see these numbers, you know, having exclusivity for the theater is still a great, economical thing for hollywood blockbusters so let's not let's not just kill the theaters just yet let's not go directly to streaming just yet your best chance to make money for your movie will always be with the theatrical experience and exclusivity so it was great to see uh that number again i hit it right on the mark so i'm very very happy um we'll see who are my next big uh, prediction is gonna be but um that was incredible work was amazing it was super busy so many full theaters so many great crowd reactions this was one of those movies that was a huge crowd pleaser so it was nice to see everybody in unison like you know cheering laughing yelling clapping all that stuff and i'm not one of those people like i get it like fanboying or fangirling a little too much like I do it in wrestling, so I don't have a problem with it. So I'm not one of those people that's in the theater like, oh, shut up, everybody. I'm trying to hear what they're trying to say. Like, if you go to a movie like that, if you go to a movie like Avengers Endgame, opening weekend, you're going to expect crowds to be riled up. So I love seeing that. And if you're somebody that takes issue with that, like, wait a freaking, like, couple of weeks before you go see it then. Because that's the atmosphere you're going to be at. And that's the atmosphere that you can only get with a theatrical experience. So... That is awesome. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm not going to dive into Spider-Man. I'm also not going to dive into The Matrix Resurrections, which is also in theaters now, but also on HBO Max. So that movie has a little bit of a hill to climb as far as box office, not only having to battle Spider-Man, but just overall, you know, where is the attention going to go? Like, I feel like for Christmas and some of the people that do like to stay in, this might be a movie that they may check out at home. I know all the diehard Matrix fans are going to see it on the big screen. I myself have seen it already. And again, I'm going to hold out on that movie as well because I'm going to be bringing back my buddy Paco Torres, who was here when we did the Super Bowl 54 preview show. Um, so he's been on this show before. And we're going to talk about all things Matrix, including the new one, Resurrection. So... Two episodes already on deck coming up uh, to discuss these two huge movies right now at the movie theaters. But right now we also got Sing 2, uh, a big family movie that I think is going to do great business for us over the holidays, over these next couple of weeks. Uh, the King's Man is also out. And then we got a couple of more movies opening on Christmas Day, which is American Underdog, The Kurt Warner Story, and A Journal for Jordan, which is another character drama from director Denzel Washington, and I mean, he's mostly known as an actor, but he does dive into directing sometimes, starring Michael B. Jordan. So there's alternate, there's content for everybody in every genre. If you're looking for drama, if you're looking for action, if you're looking for comedy, if you're looking for family, uh, if you're looking for comic books, I mean, you got it all this year 
at the movie theater. So I remember last Christmas, we only had Wonder Woman 1984. And that was a double release in theaters and HBO Max. And we were really, really like high in the pandemic as far as like, everybody stay home, don't go out, don't do anything. But this year is going to be a different story. It's going to be kind of like a back to normal. So I'm expecting a huge Christmas for us, for those of us that work at the at the movie theater. So that's something to look forward to. Um, as I mentioned, this is going to be a top 10 episode uh, of, of all things pop culture, including my top 10 favorite movies. Top 10 favorite wrestling matches, and of course, top things, top 10 things that I considered in pop culture that were big this year, and that can be on all spectrums movies, television, uh, music, um, you know, whatever. Uh, I compiled a nice little list here. Again, it's mostly through my eyes and what I viewed as my favorites, so uh, some of you may not agree with it, but this is my show and I'm going to put out my list. So that's just that. So, um, what else is going on? Gosh, just wrapped up Hawkeye. Six episode, little mini series run. Uh, incredible series. The best Marvel television show that was put out this year. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, it's a quick watch. Six episodes only, guys. It's not that hard. Just the last episode is an hour long, but even then, that thing just zipped by. I stayed up till two in the morning last night to watch it. Like, I was just full on hyped up after I saw it. And, um, you know, this show made a lot of stars. Uh, it made Florence Pugh's character more interesting. You know, her character appeared in the Black Widow movie earlier this summer, but I thought that was just a huge disappointment, a huge nothing. You know, I love Florence Pugh as an actress, and I thought she was just, like, okay in the movie. But once she appeared here in Hawkeye, she had more character development, and she only appeared, I think, what, in the final three episodes? Not that it was a long series, but... Just in the three episodes alone that she showed up in, like there was just more interest and intrigue and more development with her. And along with Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, who played like the co-star to Jeremy Renner in this show. And they became two very lovable characters. And I can't wait to see what they do next here in the MCU, whether they show up on another streaming show or whether they show up in one of these uh, future MCU movies. So uh, they got me and they built up those characters right along with, you know, Jeremy Renner just doing great work here. A lot more character development with him in this show. And just an overall fun like Christmas little story. At the end of the day, it was a Christmas story. And it ended just like how I thought it would as far as like um, in the Christmas theme of things. But a very, very fun show. And I can't highly recommend it enough. Um, I still need to get into Yellowstone. Again, I'm letting my DVR build up just a little bit. Uh, I know I can binge watch a couple of the seasons already on Peacock, which I still do have. And then, of course, uh, I was looking at my DVR of stuff that's upcoming. And the final season of This Is Us is going to be starting soon. Um, Cobra Kai is about to drop at the end of the month. But I know I'll binge that one pretty quick. And I'll I'll try to do a show covering all that. Um, they announced Atlanta is going to be coming back in 2022 in March. So I'm super stoked about that. That's my favorite FX show. It's one of the best shows I think that they have ever given us. Uh, I think it's high quality. It's funny. It's kind of like a modern day Seinfeld. Uh, it's got Donald Glover, Brian Tyree Henry, Lakey Stainfield, uh, Zoe, was it Zoe Beats? Uh, yeah, they've all done great stuff since the start of that show. They all got, you know, notori notoriety from that show. You know, Brian Tyree Henry's in the MCU now. Lakey Steinfeld's doing great work. Um, Zoe Beats has been in so, so many other stuff too. Donald Glover, of course, has 
been everywhere as well. So it's going to be nice to see them come back for Atlanta season three, which was like, I don't know if it was a two, three year hiatus. Like, and that's usually not the case for television shows. So it's kind of like, again, we're in a different realm. So now they may wait longer to do television seasons and kind of make it like a movie thing. Like, or we wait two, three years until the next season. Um, so yeah, that's, that's going to be fun to look forward to. So a lot of good TV stuff coming up for me. Uh, but yeah, the wrap up of, of Hawkeye was a great, uh, cherry on top for 2021. And I'll probably discuss that more in my top 10, uh, pop culture moments because this show really solidified what the MCU can do with these side characters. And, uh, it hasn't all been successful in, in my eyes, if I'm just being honest and unbiased. Um, but the stuff that they did do really well with, like they need to do more of that stuff. And I'll talk about that later on. But let's take a break. When we come back, I'm going to get into my top 10 favorite movies of the year. And I believe out of all the top 10 lists that I've done, as far as like every year I do my top 10 of favorite movies, this is going to be the most weird because I haven't really seen a lot. And I know there's still a lot of uh, the prestige films that haven't hit my town yet or are just about to hit. And um, I know like Oscar season is going to be coming soon and I'll probably get to those films but at, right, where we're at right now i'm recording this on december 22nd like uh, i'm kind of going to be tied up with work and doing other shows uh as well as continuing to grow my youtube channel um it's going to be hard for me to go catch uh some of these movies i just won't have time and the movies that i have seen and that i have compiled here for a top 10 probably wouldn't make it in any other year but uh, again we're still in a pandemic so I still haven't seen everything, so I really didn't get back to movie watching in the theaters myself, even though I've been working at one since the pandemic has been going on. But I myself haven't actually sat in the theater like all year long watching movies. It's been like in and out here and there. So when I unveil my top 10 list, it's going to be a little interesting and we'll see, um, we'll see what y'all think of it and let me know in the comments or send me tweets uh dms and instagram facebook all that stuff so you can let me know on all that but that's what we'll get to first but a lot of top tens to come and, and a whole show that's dedicated to everything top 10 of 2021 again we're wrapping up the year we're getting ready for 2022 but stick around we'll be right back this is palace off the top rope dear jordan based on a true story i love being a father <laughs> A film by Denzel Washington. I can't do this without you. Love is a Choice, starring Michael B. Jordan, but you have to fight for it. Welcome home, Daddy. A Journal for Jordan. Exclusively in movie theaters this Christmas. Welcome back to the show, and it's time to unveil my top 10 favorite films of 2021. And again, as I mentioned before the break, this is going to be one of the more interesting um, top 10s that I've done in a very long time. A lot of movies on here that probably wouldn't make it in any other year. And not to say like I'm like a film snob or anything like that, but mostly my top tens are filled with like probably more of the prestige like awards contenders. Um, but I haven't really gotten to see a bunch of them. Like, for example, there's been a lot of talk of like licorice pizza. Um, you know, I didn't get to see the French dispatch by Wes Anderson. I haven't seen Spencer with Kristen Stewart, like a lot of great movies with great actors and actresses um just haven't had the chance and i don't know if i'm going to be able to get to see him before the year is over to include them on this list but the stuff that for the most part that i've wanted to see i did see and uh you'll see them here on this list and again it's been a, a pretty interesting year not as 
not as weird as last year. I, I went back and looked at my top ten last year, and I was pretty confident in what I had on there, uh, considering what they were able to give us on the big screen or on streaming. And uh, I think a couple of my titles here were, I don't know if they were exclusively streaming or if they were like both uh, streaming and theater. Uh, I'll get to them as I as I go down my list. But um, yeah, a couple movies that are going to be on here that will surprise you, at least coming from me. Uh, as far as like, you probably wouldn't see them any other year, but again, we're st- still trying to get back to normal. Um, I think for us, for me working at a movie theater, things really started to feel normal once October hit. Like, yes, we had our big summer blockbusters during the summer, but it still felt like people were slowly coming back. We had our big hits, like, of course, like, you know, Fast 9 and, and Black Widow, and they did well, but... It really wasn't until October where, you know, things really started to, like, flow, flow, flow. Week after week after week, there was something. Uh, but also, it didn't help that the studios had something for us every single week. But I knew once we got to the fall of 2021, it was going to start to feel a lot more normal in terms of, like, movie going. And Spider-Man No Way Home just solidified it and just uh, kind of put us in a, in a position where it's like, okay, we're fully back. Like, Disney's really going to learn from this. They're going to go back and they're going to re-look at everything as far as like putting stuff on Premiere Access, like what they did with Black Widow and Jungle Cruise and, um, you know, Shang-Chi. I'm not sure. If, no, that that was a theater exclusive. But they're going to they're gonna re-look at that and not probably not do that. The thing that's probably not going to change is just the, the window of the movie theaters having uh, the film's exclusivity. So, like, for example, Eternals opened up in November, I believe, like right at the beginning of November. And it's going to be on Disney Plus at right at the start of January. So not that much wiggle room for the theaters. Like Usually a movie makes most of its money within the month anyway. But, you know, it's going to come quicklier to, to home video. That's the only thing that's really going to change for the movie theaters. But, you know, for the big blockbusters like a Spider-Man, it's going to make a majority of its money within the first couple of weeks. And that'll be enough and it'll be a huge hit for the studios and whatnot. So... Not worried about that. And again, everything that I wanted to see, for the most part, I watched. And this is my top 10 for 2021. Let's get into it. At number 10, it's the horror film Malignant from director James Wan. Now, this one was a double dose of streaming and theaters. Uh, It was on HBO Max, which is the way I saw it. I know I advocate for the movie theaters. But as I've stated on the podcast before, when it comes to horror movies, I cannot, for the life of me, do the jump scares in the theater. Now, there's certain movies where I overlooked that and went into it. Like the first Conjuring movie, I I overcame my fear and did that even though I thought it was scary as shit. Uh, I did it for the It movies, both of them, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. So every once in a while, I'll get the courage and go into a theater for the horror movies. But for the most part, I'm going to watch it at home. Now... When it comes to Scream, that's my favorite horror franchise, even though horror is not my genre at all. But that one is my favorite film franchise. And the new one's coming out in January, right in the middle of it. And I, for sure, am going to watch that in a movie theater. But yes, let's get back to the actual movie. Number 10, Malignant. Uh, This was a wacky, like, return to, like, form for James Wan. Like, this is his little baby. So he started off doing, like, Insidious and... In the first Conjuring. So this is his type of genre. Now he's since gone on to do like major blockbusters. Like 
He did Furious 7. And then he did Aquaman, like an even bigger like comic book superhero movie. And I think he's doing the sequel as well. So big time, like budgeted movies that he's into doing now. Like he's, I don't want to say like a top five director, but he's definitely in the top 10 as far as like a visionary, uh, you know, just a, a name that you can attach to the motion picture and it'll do well. Now, Malignant didn't do well box office wise. Again, it was a very, again, this, this is one that I think James Wan did for himself. I'm sure like when he did Aquaman, I'm sure he made a deal in his contract somewhere where he was like, hey, can I like do a movie like a passion project or something like that for myself once I get done doing this? And I'm sure Warner Brothers and after seeing how much money Aquaman made for them at the box office, um, I'm sure they gave them the greenlit to to do that. So I, I feel like that was part of the deal. So he came back to do a small little horror movie. Very different, very wacky. Um, so I saw this at home on HBO Max. I thought it was very fun. Uh, definitely probably would have given me the scares in the theater uh, with the jump because there's a lot of nice little jump scares too. Uh, it was very nicely acted, a simple story, uh, a nice little twist in it in the third act, which um, I think, I mean, if you're a diehard horror fan, I think you maybe might have caught it. But for someone like me, like for these movies are not the norm. I didn't see the plot twist coming on this, and I still won't give it away. I want you all to experience this movie for yourself, especially for those of you like a lot of the kids these days and a lot of the younger people are always looking for a horror movie to watch or date night or whatnot. Um, if you're looking for a horror movie to check out, uh, either rent it, buy it. I'm still an advocate for physical media, so buy it on Blu-ray. Um, but uh, if not, stream it on HBO Max. I think it's still on there. Um yeah, this was a fun little horror film for James, for James Wan to get back to. Just a, again, he's a master of his craft, so it's very well directed. And uh, it's very rare for a horror movie to make my top 10. But again, this is a, a year unlike on other, on any other. Uh, you know, 2020 and 2021 are just, we're going to be remembering these years in time as like just this, you're going to see weird lists. And, you know, even looking at the box office numbers for 2021, like, it's just very weird. Like we're used to seeing movies in the high, like at least for like the top ten, like high three hundred millions and on. And for for this year, the only like huge giant blockbuster that made is going to make over three hundred million is Spider Man No Way Home. Anything other other than that is like just above two hundred million. So again, we're in a weird time, and we're going to look back on this, and it's going to be just something that we look at and be like, man, that was just such a an interesting uh, little error that we went through. So uh, I don't feel bad for for this list. And uh, the movies that made it on here made it on here. And I have no regrets. But this is Malignant from director James Wan.
At number nine was a streaming exclusive, but um, this probably would have done well in the movie theaters, but it is what it is. Zack Snyder's Justice League, which was the original intent of director Zack Snyder, who was doing the Justice League movie, um, but had to step away for personal reasons. And they brought in director Joss Whedon, who had done like the Avengers and was successful with that. So they kind of redid the whole movie. Ended up being a huge disaster commercial, com- commercially, critically. Uh, it's been like pretty much disowned by every fan of like DC for the most part, including myself. I remember when I came out of that movie, I was like, put Batman to rest. Like, I don't want to see him on screen for a very long time. Like, this movie just was just a complete and utter disaster. Um, there was some bright spots in it. Like, Ezra Miller's The Flash, I really enjoyed so he fit the comedy portion of what was going on in this movie, but they really tried to lighten it up. And it was just complete, just, it was just a complete, like, it felt like there was a lot of stuff missing. Like, I don't know, it just felt like it was put together and there was a lot of studio interference and they had a budget and they had a, you know, a release date to meet and salaries for the corporate employees. So just a lot of stuff that went wrong for this movie and they, uh, and, a hashtag on the internet um, went like viral for so many years, like release the Snyder cut, release the Snyder cut. So this justice league movie was released, I believe what in 2017, I want to say, or 2018. It was, it was somewhere around there. And uh, here we got it in 2021. And I, I myself thought that this thing didn't even exist until Zack Snyder, like, you know, throughout the last couple of years had posted like little snippets and clips or po- po- or pictures, I should say, of uh, his original vision for this movie. And, you know, there was a strong, like, fan base. A lot of them toxic uh, about it, uh, but a-, a lot of good fans, uh, like my buddy Tyler Bishop, who we did a deep dive on this movie. You can go back and check out this that episode from earlier this year. Um, we went into all of that, including talking about the movie itself, and I really enjoyed it. It really was... Uh, completely different from the the Joss Whedon cut. Um, it just felt like a whole brand new thing. It's four hours, and it's shot like really uh, interesting. So, for those of you that have like high definition smart TVs, when you watch it, it, it's actually formatted for a different type of screen. So, you get the black bars on the side. Usually, for a movie that's shot in widescreen, you get the black bars at the bottom. And the top of the screen, but here you get them on the side, so the picture's a little bit different. But that was the intent of Zack Snyder. He wanted this movie to be presented in a certain way, and it definitely feels it's more epic. It's more, it feels more like a big scale movie, like in terms of like Lord of the Rings, like just that type of like gravitas epic. And it's unlike anything that we've ever really seen before. And I gave it a shot. You know, I, I poked fun at the at the toxic fan base. And also, like, I just didn't really see any, like, I saw the trailers for it leading up to it. And I was kind of like, ah, whatever. But, you know, I I wanted to give it a chance. I really enjoyed Ben Affleck as Batman. So if this in some way had redeemed him for the atrocious performance we got in the, the original Justice League cut. But later we came to find out Ben Affleck was going through personal demons. So I won't fault him completely for that. Um, But... In the stuff that was shot with Zack Snyder and all the footage that had been like already wrapped up and just put in um, into the vault, 
And I know they did a couple of reshoots. This move, the director was uh, Snyder was actually given a couple more million dollars to do some extra stuff, and, and the stuff that they did add was very interesting. And the movie's kind of left open ended as to like maybe they might do something else with this in the future, but who knows? Like Zack Snyder said, he just wanted to put a his stamp on it, his closure on it, just to show his vision of what uh, Justice League that he wanted to put out there into the world. Um, and he did a fine job with it. Like I'm not the biggest Zack Snyder fan, you know. I I, I thought Man of Steel was okay. I thought BVS. Uh, that's Batman v Superman for those of you that don't know. Um, I thought the theatrical of that movie was missing stuff, but then when the, the extended director's cut came out later that year, I enjoyed that version a little more. It was more, there was more context to it. But the other stuff that he's put out just is really not my kind of thing. Watchmen, 300, uh, Sucker Punch. I'm just ne- not really into Zack Snyder, but he did a good job here with, with, with Justice League and his take on it, his cut. I believe to be the definitive cut. Like, I don't think I'll ever watch the Joss Whedon version again. And I even went out and bought earlier this year, they, they put out a, a trilogy box set. And it's actually titled Zack Snyder's Justice League Trilogy. And it's got Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, the ultimate uh, extended cut, and then the Zack Snyder's Justice League. Uh, all in one box set. Like, I'm going it, to... It'll be a fun movie to revisit through the years. Again, it's very... It's long... But I think it's it tells a really grand story, and it's way different than the theatrical cut. So if you never never saw it, I highly recommend checking this one out. So this is Zack Snyder's Justice League at number nine. Oh, Miss Prince, let me do that. No, that's okay. I can do it myself. Would you like to have some? Uh, no, thank you. Put the water in first. Of course. So we don't scald the tea. Yes. Please. No, that's probably enough tea. All right. Are you sure you don't want to have some? I won't, thank you. And then leave it to mash. I will. I will. Definitely will. Uh, what are you working on? Uh, it's a gauntlet. Lined with specialized polymer solar cells. Yeah, let me show you. We borrowed this from the Kryptonian scout ship. <laughs> oh, maybe you should uh, a fraction. Of course. It. Thank you. Ah, now see how that did. Ha! Yes. Not to be sneezed at. A gauntlet that captures and dissipates energy. It's Master Wayne's idea. Maybe you should work on a lasso, too. In black, of course. At number eight was one that was a little bit of a surprise. And it came earlier in the year. So it was still people, like, kind of uncomfortable with coming out to the movie theaters. It wasn't exclusive, but although it didn't last long, it, it actually went to streaming not so long after it was released in theaters but it's the movie nobody starring bob odenkirk from you know breaking bad and better call saul and this is a guy who's usually like the supporting character and usually doesn't play like the tough guy role which i think is why it makes this movie really good so it's kind of like in the vein of like john wick although keanu reeves is very believable as an action star like you think bob odenkirk and once you see him you don't really think action hero 
But here he does a complete, like, turn. So he plays, like, the normal everyday average guy, and you find out, like, he has, like, this other side to him, and he's, like, this magnificent, like, fighter and, you know, weapons master and, you know, can go toe-to-toe up against gangs, and it's just this incredible little nice little action movie. And uh, hopefully we get to see more. It looks like they were building on some mythology here, kind of like the way John Wick did. You know, I think it's from some of the same producers and writers. And it was just a nice little fun movie. Uh, I recommend it. Um, again, it was just a, it was a small surprise. And when I went to see it, it way like overperformed uh, of what I thought it was going to be. And it, it turned out to be a really, really fun movie. So this is Bob Odenkirk in the movie Nobody. Everybody gets in the basement. What? Right now. Let's go. Move. What? Move. What? 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 Right What's now. Hutch is scaring me. Go. What is going on? Get the door, on? son. Is this a game? Yes, is this a game, Hutch? I like games. Hutch, what is happening? At number seven is Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Now, let me make my case for this movie, okay? A, it's 90 minutes, so it's one of the fastest watches you're going to go through this year. Uh, Most comic book movies these days are over the two-hour and 15-minute mark. And I got to tell you, I sat through Shang-Chi and Black Widow and Eternals this year. And let me tell you, there's like about 20 minutes of those movies that could have been cut out. Like in each of them. Like sometimes these movies go on for so long. And Venom Let There Be Carnage completely wastes no time in getting to the point. Not that there's a huge plot in this anyway. It's Woody Harrelson and Tom Hardy being just super wacky and just being over the top with this material. I mentioned this when I reviewed the movie in in another episode. But I just miss the days when movies like this weren't, like, taken so seriously and, like, you know, I get it with the MCU and the epicness of the Avengers and even uh, Spider-Man's No Way Home, which just came out this past weekend. Like, I get it that those movies are are taken seriously by a lot of the fandoms and, I mean, it's earned that right. But there needs to be variety also. I love it when they're so, like, this, this Venom Let There Be Carnage was right up there with, with Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and it just being campy and goofy and trashy. Like, it's like I sometimes I like my movies. It's okay for them to be trashy. Like, I know it's not the best thing, but I can still enjoy it. You know, I can go in there for 90 minutes, eat my popcorn and my hot dog, be entertained by Tom Hardy interacting with the symbiote and acting all stupid, and then just be done with it. And I had a fun, like, you know, little roller coaster ride. Like, it's okay for these movies to be like that. They don't have to be all epic and so deep and meaningful in character. Like, sometimes it could just be goofiness. And I'm okay with that. And that's exactly what Venom Let There Be Carnage was. Now, this one was more entertaining than the first movie. Now, the first movie, the only reason it gets by is because, of course, Tom Hardy makes it. That movie's a little bit more bad than this one. This one, at least, like... It shortens it so you don't get really get to be mad about a plot or story because there really isn't one. It's just, again, it's it's Tom Hardy. It's Woody Harrelson. They interact real quickly, and the story develops really slightly, and then it comes to a conclusion like really quick. And I love that. 
and it's wacky. Give me more of Tom Hardy just acting out with the Venom part of him. And it's a buddy comedy. That's all I need it to be. It could be trashy. doesn't need to be dramatic. doesn't need to be epic. It is what it is. And I can't wait for Spider-Man to show up in this version. This Venomverse is what I'm calling it. And have him interact with this character. Because I think they can do some pretty hilarious and funny and trashy things. And it's okay for that to happen. Because there's room for it all. Like we got the epic gravitas with Spider-Man No Way Home. And now we can have all sorts of fun with it. With Spider-Man being back in the Venomverse. So looking forward to that. That's how that movie ended. So spoilers if you haven't seen Venom. Uh, there's a post credit scene where... Venom and uh, Eddie Brock both see Spider-Man on the screen and having him be unmasked as Peter Parker. But now with the event of Spider-Man No Way Home, I don't know if he knows who he is, but I'll get into more of that with Brandon McLaughlin. But this is Tom Hardy and Woody Harrelson in Let There Be Carnage, the second Venom chapter. Eddie said that he might be here because of the chocolate. I, I just need to speak with the alien. Well, hey, you said there weren't going to be any aliens. I meant more aliens. Breaking news. The mayor has issued a curfew. Can you turn the volume up, please? Locked doors. Cassidy and Barrison should be treated as armed and extremely dangerous. An all-out manhunt continues tonight. So? Cletus has a symbiote. Oh, my God. Any other information you're pathologically lying about? Pussy. Excuse me? Eddie needs Venom. She just called me a pussy. He said he didn't need him. That life was better without him. Okay, I don't understand. What do you care? Oh, wait a second. You get out here right now. Do you, do you see that? Seriously, do you see that? Yeah, hon, I've seen it. Eddie's going to have to fight this battle all by his little bitch self. Oh, don't be a big baby. Go help your friend. He said I couldn't get a job fixing toilets. Cletus will come for him. He won't survive without you. Of course he won't. Because I am the hero of the two of us. Yeah, you're the big sexy hero. You're the coolest, you're the hottest, and you're the bravest. I am. Um, no, I'm still standing right here. No one likes you, Dan. I love seeing you in action. Mm. Let's go save that asshole. At number six is Spider-Man No Way Home. Now, I won't dive into any of the details of this movie because I'm going to be doing a full-on podcast with Brandon McLaughlin in the upcoming week. And we're going to talk all things about that. Plus, the movie's still fresh. So I don't want to spoil because there's a lot of neat stuff in this movie. And what I'll say about this movie, what I can at least, is that it's probably the best crowd-pleasing movie and as satisfying of a movie as you're going to get this year. And as I mentioned in my Facebook post on social media, it's definitely a great way to end the year. It's uh, It's got a very like positive message at the end of this movie. And again, just a lot of good stuff that happens. It's a culmination of a lot of things. It's kind of like the ending, but also also the beginning as well. So that's all I'll say about it, but it's my number six movie. This is Spider-Man No Way Home. Hello, Peter. Hi. Do, we, do I know you? What have you done with my machine? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. What machine? Do you want to play games? Catch! 
Number five is James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, which is kind of like a reimagining uh, of 2000, what did I believe it's 16's uh, Suicide Squad from David Ayer, which was a, a huge box office success, but it was critically panned. I know a lot of fan bases that didn't like it. There was a couple of good things that came out of that movie, uh, one of them being Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. I think she's definitively definitively made that role hers, so they brought her back for this version, and she's also since then had her own spinoff movie. Uh, I hope they bring her back for future movies. I, I think she's great as Harley Quinn. Um, also, Will Smith as Deadshot, but he's not back in this version, although I think it was like a scheduling conflict, uh, or maybe it might have been creative differences. I, who knows, but he was also like a, a good part of that movie. But uh, it really needed like uh, a different director to kind of get it right because these are like more misfits and stuff like that. So this is kind of right up James Gunn's alley who did a tremendous job with the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. So when I heard he was being brought on for this project, and of course this was after he got fired from Disney the first time. Um, so DC was quick to pick him up and a very smart move. Uh, this movie failed box office wise. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with there was kind of a resurgence going on during the latter part of the summer with the with the virus and all that stuff. There was kind of a little scare, and it was a little bit weird for the movie theaters for that that latter part of the summer, like late July, early August, where it was like, "Whoa, like what's going on here?" Like we were doing good in the summer, and then all of a sudden, like just you know, this news came out about a uh, another variant, and uh, you know, feels like there's a new variant every other week, as I mentioned earlier. But uh, yeah, it was kind of quiet for a bit. So, and not only that. But I think what also had going against it was the fact that it was an HBO Max release as well. And also because no, nobody really liked that first movie. So, you know, that also plays into it. You know, like they could get it right the second time. But sometimes you burn your bridge with those, uh, you know, the diehards are going to see it. But the casual moviegoers that probably went to go see Suicide Squad the first time, they were like turned off by it. They were like, this is horrible. Why do I want to sit through this again? But nonetheless, in spite of all of that, for me, the movie was incredible. Like, they assembled a great cast for this, including John Cena, who's just had an incredible year this year. And he, in fact, he was so good as his character Peacemaker in this movie, he's actually getting a spinoff series that's going to be debuting on HBO Max right at the start of January. So again, the start of 2022 is going to be an amazing one for myself as I got a lot of great stuff to watch. And Peacemaker is going to be a great part of that because James Gunn is also directing, I think, that series or at least a chunk of the episodes. I'm not sure how many episodes it's going to be, but, you know, he was really good in that movie. And to hear that he's going to get a series to to accompany that uh, is just even more awesome. Uh, you know, Margot Robbie is incredible as well. She's back here as Harley Quinn. Uh, James Gunn really gave her some nice stuff to do in this movie. Uh, she was more like eye candy in the first version. And then of course in birds of prey, she really broke out and made the character her own. And she just continues to, you know, 
just work on that and build on that uh, in this movie. Um, Sylvester Stallone uh, voices King Shark, who is another standout of this movie. You know, Sylvester Stallone is one of my favorite actors in the world. And although he's just voicing here and does like very minimal like voice work, a little bit more than Vin Diesel as Groot, but still nonetheless a very small like vocal work. But he does a tremendous job. Idris Elba is good. You know, the supporting cast is great. They brought back also Viola Davis uh, from the first Suicide Squad as Amanda Waller. So she's good, too. Uh, there's a good soundtrack and James Gunn's just an overall great director. So it, it's just very well done. And I wish it would have done well, uh, in, I mean, it did well critically, but I wish it would have done well box office. Um, and I don't know if we'll, we'll see a sequel to it or anything like that, but you know, I would love to see more of Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, more of Stallone as King Shark. You know, HBO Max is green lighting all these different projects. And I know they got the Peacemaker thing going, but you know, I would love to see King Shark again. And, of course, uh, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. But with that being said, that is my number five. This is James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. That's where they hold him flat. Nothing like a bloodbath to start the day. They call you peacemaker. I cherish peace with all my heart. I don't care how many men, women, and children I need to kill to get it. I thought you were the crazy one. I am. At number four is F9, The Fast Saga. Now, this was a return to form for the series, which had kind of, you know, we saw saw it hit the highest of highs with Fast 5 and Fast 6 in my eyes. But then Furious 7, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, things that went wrong, you know, including the untimely death of um, Paul Walker. So they had to redo a lot of the whole movie. And for the most part, like James Wan did like an incredible job with what he had to work with and had to work around. So they made that movie work. And I feel like we had reached like the highest we could go with this series. And then the fate of the furious came out, I believe like two or three years later. And I thought that one was kind of a letdown. You know, it's the first movie without Paul Walker, who I always thought was the heart of this franchise, but there was just something missing about this movie. It felt very just kind of like a, for the first time in this series, it really felt like just like kind of like a a nothing sequel. Like there was stuff developing, but overall, it just the movie didn't work for me. And also, it didn't have uh, Justin Lin, who had done such incredible job in Fast Five and Fast Six, and had made the series and elevated it with the incredible action sequences. And he had done so much great job that he ended up getting the opportunity to do Star Trek. And to me, I think he's one of the best action directors out there. So when I heard he was going to come back for like the final installments in this series, I'm like, okay, that's going to be something interesting and to look forward to as far as like visually. Now story, what are they going to do to continue to make things interesting? Then they announced that uh, John Cena was going to be in this movie. And again, I'm everything about John Cena right now. He's such a... He's so diverse in things that he can do. He can be funny. He can be the action buffer. Or he can also, like, you know, he can be a little dramatic. You know, I have used to watch a couple of his WWE studio films. He did a movie called Legendary. Very small film. You know, not... It's one of those, like, direct-to-home video type things. Although it did have a little limited theatrical run. And he's good at doing the dramatics also. So, how is he as a villain, though? Uh, that's one thing that a lot of these... Um, these actors, these big like action macho guys really try not to go for, you know, Schwarzenegger did it in Terminator, but then afterwards it's hero, 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 hero. Stallone, I, it's rare when you see him go the villain route. 
Uh, I think the only time he ever really did it was for what was it, Spy Kids 3D, and that's a family movie. And you got and then you got Dwayne Johnson, right? You know, and for the most part, he's the Rock in every movie. I think early on in, in his career, he tried to do a couple of different things, but for the most part, like he does like the same stuff. Now they brought in Cena for this part of the story, and he was going to be the villain. I'm like, okay, he's going to change it up a bit. I want to see how evil or how villainous is it believable. And uh, they told a great story here as uh, one of the long-lost uh, Toretto family members. And they they do a great dynamic here, and they bring back Jordana Brewster into this story. So she's a huge part in this. We thought we weren't going to see her anymore because the Paul Walker character is no longer, you know, obviously he's not alive in, in the real world. And story-wise, they kind of sent them off and, you know, the family life and no more of this, you know, doing the mercenary type stuff mission work um so they brought her back into this and then of course you add in the incredible direction from justin lynn and there's some really good action set pieces here and really like they picked back up the story and they got things more interesting and they found a way to bring back um i forgot what his name is but the character of han in the movie you know who who we thought died in 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 tokyo drift uh, which is part three in the series, but really, you know, he, he came out in part four, five, and six, but those really took place before Tokyo Drift, but I'm getting, you know, try not to get you confused as far as like the chronology of these movies. But either way, we thought he had died. They found a way to bring him back where he wasn't really dead, and they did it in a clever way. They explained it. I'm like, okay, whatever. This series is already over the top anyway, so... You kind of just either you're, you're with it or you're not like at this point, because in this movie, they actually do the unthinkable and they actually have two of the characters go to space and do something as far as like with cars. So that just goes to show you how over the top it's gone. But at the center of it, we care about the characters. We care about the whole family theme, which is really like brought to like full circle here and just the addition of John Cena uh, and I'm interested to see how it's going to conclude. They got one more film to, to go with the main cast. And then we'll see what eventually comes, you know, down the line, whether we get a full spinoff of, you know, an all-female cast, you know, led by like Michelle Rodriguez or something like that. Um, we heard there's a movie with, you know, um, Charlize Theron's character of Cypher having her own movie. So, you know, she's still involved in this in the main story. So... Obviously, she's going to continue on. We still got the Hobbs and Shaw thing. And, you know, the Han and, and Shaw aspect of the story is going to be in, real interesting and see where they go with it. And and the movie's been out a while, so I don't mind doing spoilers here. But, you know, John Cena, while playing the main villain role for the most part, he ends up turning at the end of the movie and helps out uh, Toretto and the entire clan. And, you know, he goes off kind of like on the run. You know, they let him get away. And kind of like just, you know, since he helped them out, kind of like the way Paul Walker's character let uh, Vin Diesel's character walk away in the first movie. It was kind of like one of those homages to that. So I know they'll bring him back uh, in the finale. But I just thought it was it was done really well, you know, just more backstory on the Toretto family. And, you know, I love Jordana Brewster, so it was great to have her back in the story. Hopefully she's back here for the finale, which I'm sure she will because they're going to wrap up the entire thing. And um, they kind of tease at the end of... Uh, you know, I don't know how they would do it going forward. And, you know, they kind of said they've retired the character. But Paul Walker's Brian O'Connor shows up at the end of this movie, although you you just see his car drive into the to the parking lot. But 
um, they tease it. So we'll see what's to come. But I thought F9 was a, a back to form. And the biggest part of that reason is Justin Lin. So F9, the fast saga at number four on my top 10 of 2021. You know, the only good thing to come from dad dying. If he hadn't, I'd have spent my entire life in your shadow. And now, you're going to spend the rest of yours living in mine. Only good thing about Dad dying was he didn't have to watch what you became. Never deserved the Toretto name. You think you knew Dad, huh? What, because you're his favorite? You don't know shit! You want the truth? Dad died because he was trying to throw that race. We were in deep debt. Because of how he felt about you. He had to ask me for help. How was I supposed to know that car was going to blow? A good son would have said no. And a real brother would have come to me. Come to you. He made me promise you would never find out. And do all of it. I kept that promise. The girl comes with me. Jacob! I will stop you. And that's my promise. At number three is Tom McCarthy's Stillwater starring Matt Damon. This came out at the end of July. And, of course, like movies like this really don't uh, have the muster that they do to, like, bring in that audience to, to give it, like, a huge opening. Like, if this was a movie that came out, like, in the late 90s, back when movie star power was a huge deal, it, it would have made money. You know, because Matt Damon is one of the biggest movie stars that we've had this century. Um this is a nice character drama. It's really like it. It's it takes place outside of the U.S. It's location based, but it's it was nice to see a movie like this where there's like no CGI. You know, it's not action based, and you're seeing real locations and just you know actors. You know, build these characters and interact, and it's very heartfelt and it's very of the times of right now with you know a lot of the division and borders and you know there's a lot of that but it's not really in your face about it it's just more like it, it's in that world and, and it just is you know it's just dealing with the way times are now um nice supporting cast but again the 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 big performance here is matt damon um kind of plays this like i don't want to say a redneck but you know just kind of more southern and you know just kind of like conservative base and just sticking to his gut and and the way he believes in things and and it's about his progression through the movie so he's trying to help out his daughter who's imprisoned overseas because she's being convicted of a friend's murder which she had nothing to do with so it's matt damon's character trying to claim her innocence and trying to get her case reopened so he's working through uh i believe it's somewhere in europe where they're at and um you know he's just navigating the waters and you know he has to he has to find someone to communicate with that will be able to help him maneuver around so again it's this very character based very 
It's a lot of good drama. I thought I thought it was one of the best first really good movies of the year that I saw, and I think you should check it out too if, if you're into, you know, just really again movies more character driven. It's very it's plotted very slowly, so it builds momentum as it goes. I'm not saying it's slow or anything like that, but you know, most of these days everybody wants everything to go 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 go. Um, but for a movie like this, it has a nice like ascension to get really good. And then by the time it's over, you're like, wow, that, that was way better than what I thought it was going to be. And, but that's Matt Damon. He does movies like that. So at number three, Stillwater. Et je ferai la même chose au tribunal s'il le faut. Mais attendez, c'est sérieux ce qu'on vous demande là, monsieur Mais regardez-les. Ils sont tous coupables de quelque chose oh, là-dedans. Ok. C'est bon. Let's go. What do you say Nothing is useless. Merci du coup. Au revoir, madame. Hey 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 What happened I'm sorry, I just, I, I can't talk to that guy anymore. He was just saying some horrible things. Like what? Like he just wants to put an Arab kid in jail. You know, he doesn't care which one. That's it? That's it? What do you mean, that's it? He's a racist. Okay, he's a racist. We still gotta talk to him. No, I don't talk to him, no. Well, he might know something. No, he doesn't know something. Bill, we're not gonna send an innocent boy to jail. My daughter is innocent. Oh, I can't believe this conversation. Well, then, you live in some fancy-ass world, honey, because I work with guys like that all the time. No, but it doesn't matter, okay? It's not right. I'm not saying it's right. I'm trying to get my little girl out of jail. That's all I give a fuck about. And you sound very American right now. Good, I am. Yeah, and you're also a stranger here. You don't understand shit. At number two is being the Ricardos from director and writer Aaron Sorkin. Again, I just talked about this one recently. I saw it not too long ago. Uh, it's going to be an Amazon Prime. It's actually barely going to show up or is already on Amazon Prime. So you can stream that if you're comfortable, more comfortable at home. Uh, it's definitely a must-see. Knockout performances from Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem. And then also J.K. Simmons. These guys should all get an Oscar nominated. Sorkin should be nominated for his screenplay which is always like the sharpest of scripts. If you've ever seen anything Sorkin, you will realize how different of a screenwriter he is from everybody else. Like it's always fast paced and it makes the actors performances even that much better. That's what, that's probably one of the underrated things about Sorkin is that his scripts makes the acting even better. So like if you sign up for a Sorkin movie, like I would love to do one of his movies one day just to learn the dialogue and see if I can keep up and, and and grow as an actor because I think that's what he does. You look at his movies like A Few Good Men, The American President, The Social Network, everything that he did with The West Wing. Um, there was this show he did, and it kind of reminded me of it, watching this movie, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which was a behind-the-scenes look at a, at a SNL-type show done in a dramatic fashion, and his scripts were so sharp. You look at his last series that he did, The Newsroom, which was like a CNN type of uh, news show. Again, it was like Studio 60, but a little bit more serious. And again, the the scripts were just so incredible, and the acting just, you know, just went up to a whole other level because of the scripts. And, you know, Sorkin is now diving into the directing game. And, you know, while a lot of people haven't really given him credit as a director, 
And, you know, I can't really judge per se because I've only seen uh, he's done. This is, I think, his third directorial feature. I didn't see his first one, Molly's Game, with Jessica Chastain. But I did see what he did last year with the trial of the Chicago 7. I, and I thought he did a great job. Um, but, of course, what sticks out more with his movies is the screenplay. But here he actually does a little bit of a better job in presenting the story as far as, like, from a visual standpoint. So he's starting to kind of get that down, and he does a great job with it here. But, again, he's in his comfort zone. He's in his uh, he's in his area, right, because this is the behind-the-scenes of the I Love Lucy television show and her dealing with a scandal outside. And, you know, it was a great – it's not a biography movie, but – it just takes place within a couple of days or within a week's worth of uh, shooting an episode uh, in front of a live audience. So it's all the lead up to that and all the dramatics that lead up to that moment. But it also has little bits of flashbacks of how um, Lucy and uh, Desi Arnaz met and how they fell in love and got married and all that stuff. So there's a little bit of those snippets that are in there. But again, it's a sharp script. Um, it's not a huge story, but it's all self-contained in that little, uh, one, uh, you know, Monday through Friday work week. And it, it's just, it's done really well. And I can't highly recommend it enough. And I, I can see this being nominated for a lot of Oscars and hopefully Sorkin. I don't know if he'll get nominated for director, but he should at least get some props for doing a much better job and growing as not only a writer, but as a director. So this is being the Ricardos. Lucy Ricardo will be pregnant on the show. An eight-episode arc, starting with Lucy telling Ricky the happy news and ending with the birth of the baby. No, no, no. You can't have a pregnant woman on television. Why not? Because it's television. We come into people's homes. Pregnant women often vomit. I know I could any second. May I say something? Frankly, I can't if wait. If Lucy Ricardo's pregnant, the audience's mind immediately goes to how did she get that way? Lucy and Ricky sleep in separate beds. We'll be pushing the beds together, too. Oh, oh no. No, 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 no. I'm no. sorry, Des. We're going to have to put our foot down on this one. You can't do it. End of discussion. And finally, we come to my number one film of 2021. And I think this was this one was by a landslide, even though I really love being the Ricardos. It's Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, starring Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, who is the revelation of this movie, even though I don't, I don't like saying that cliche thing of being a revelation, but she's so incredible in this movie. And of course, my favorite, Ben Affleck, in a supporting role here, and I hope he gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars, because he just pulls off just such a performance that we haven't seen from him in a very long time. Yes, he's a movie star, but... I think people forget it. he can also act and he can turn it on when he needs to. And he does an incredible job in this role. It's a story of – it's a very hot topic right now and something that's really come into the forefront. Even though this is kind of set in the medieval times like Braveheart and Gladiator and all that stuff, uh, which is what really Scott is really good for and what you bring him in for. Um, so it deals with rape. But it's told from three separate point of views. And then, of course, it's a story about, like, who do you believe? And, you know, it's about, you know, toxic uh, male masculinity. And, uh, you know, who do you believe? Who do you don't? Um, do you, do you like, take the woman uh, story for what it's worth? But her story is left uh, as the final act. And that's where the movie, like, really dives in and gets really emotional uh, again, Ridley Scott is at the top of his form. 
Uh, he did two movies this year. So he had this one and then he had House of Gucci. House of Gucci was a little bit more over the top as far as like the performances. But I think overall here in The Last Duel, he's really like, this is like best picture type stuff. And, uh, Adam Driver's great as always. Matt Damon is, is in top form as well. But it's really Jodie Comer that steals the movie. And I think she's going to be in a lot of stuff coming up soon in the years to come. And again, I'm going to stand so hard, not only because, you know, Ben Affleck is my favorite actor, but his performance here is just so good in the supporting part that it's just undeniable. I think he really deserves that Oscar nomination uh, because, you know, he has one for writing, which was one of the things that really sold me uh, in the build to a movie like this because usually movies that are set in this time period are not really like stuff that I gravitate to. Like it really has to be uh, something specific in the story and also like who's making it, who's filming it. So, you know, when it comes to stuff like that, I'm really not into it. But when I heard Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were co-writers on the script along with – they have another female um, – screenwriter here that that wrote the female store part of this story which was incredible like that's real that's real progressiveness right there because had this been in any other time period you know the early 2000s especially like any time before that it would all be written from a man's point of view and it's not it's it's written from all perspectives so that's what makes this movie more powerful and all the more like, oh crap, like this is so relevant to the times that are going on right now because as we know, the Me Too movement and all that stuff and, and, and females not being afraid to speak out on harassment and stuff like that and really bringing out, you know, just bringing these evil people up to the forefront and, and have them punished for or be accountable for the, for their actions. So this movie is really powerful. It's two and a half hours, but again, it's told from three different point of views, and it's very, very well acted, well directed, great script. Uh, to me, it's it's just top notch filmmaking. It's Ridley Scott at his best with a great, great cast. This is the last duel. You knew what would happen to me should you lose this duel. You knew, and you didn't tell me. God will not punish those who tell the truth. My fate. And our child's fate will be written not by God's will, but by which old man will die first. How dare you speak to me this way? What have I to lose? I begged you to find another way, and now I might be burned alive. I am risking my life for you. Hmm. You are risking my life so you can fight your enemy and save your bride. And that could render our child an orphan. Why did you not think of that? And there you have it, folks. My top 10 films of 2021. Again, a couple of these movies in any other year would not make this list. Like a Venom Let There Be Carnage or F9 or, you know, even Spider-Man for, for, for that matter. Like there was even the, the year Avengers Endgame came out. I don't even think that made my top 10. There were just so many other great movies and again i'm not a film snob i love all different kinds of movies but for the most part like there's a lot of blockbusters here on this list and that hasn't been the case for me the last couple of years um so again just different time that we're in right now and a lot of the other stuff that's coming out right now that's probably more prestige either hasn't come to my theaters or, or my side of town it's in the big you know new york la area or i just haven't you know 
really had a chance to go see it, you know, because there's only certain places where it's playing. Um, and I go where <laughs> these days where stuff is easily accessible to me. So there you have it. Anyway, still a lot more to come on this episode. Um, let's let's cap it off with my top 10 wrestling matches of the year and then uh, top 10 pop culture moments of the year. So stick around. This is Palace Off the Top Rope. We'll be right back. Remember that story that they told us about in training? About Washington's first female spy during the revolution. Agent 355, they called her. Because nobody knew her real name. Well, somebody did. They just didn't want the world to know it. We put ourselves in danger so others aren't. We're the 355. Welcome back to the show and the 355 starring Jessica Chastain, Diane Kruger, and a whole sort of just kind of like a female, like mercenary type uh, action movie. That's going to be the first studio movie to kick us off for 2022. Now we'll see if it does anything at the box office. Uh, that's going to be a, a continuing trend, right? Like, is it just like the big comic book IP movies that make money and everything else just kind of like comes and goes? But, you know, as long as we get them in the theater, I'll be happy. So that'll be the first one for 2022. Um, so I was going to start us off with my top 10 wrestling matches of 2021, but I kind of want to do the just top 10 pop culture moments and uh, I'll breeze through these like it's not going to be a clip fest like the way I did it with the movies. I'm going to just talk about these. Some of them I have some stuff to say and some of them we can go by them pretty quickly. So from 10 to 1 here are my like from my point of view, my lens of what I thought were were the top 10 biggest moments in pop culture um, and, and just, you know, you can disagree with it, you know, make of it what you will. But this is what uh, got me excited throughout the year. And um, hopefully you you enjoy this list. So at number ten, it's uh, Britney Spears finally getting freed from her conservatorship. Um, that really got brought to my attention in an FX series. Uh, I think it's done by like the New York Times, and they do like these little specials on, and they focus on these news stories. And they were going to do one on on Britney Spears, and I remember seeing it on Hulu, and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Let me watch this, and it really give you gave you a different perspective on how the media treated her back in the day, how us as a society like tore her down and all this stuff. You really they really painted a good picture of how the media was a, a lot at fault for how everything spiraled out of control for her. Like we tried to make her s- seem like she was the crazy one like, you know, at the time when she like shaved her head back in I believe I forgot what. It was like in the early 2000s when she did that and called her crazy and all this stuff but you kind of find out like there's just a lot of stuff that she was dealing with personally family wise and then of course obviously her father just having control of everything going on in her life whether it be money and you know just all aspects of her life and just really put her in a in a state of like you know just depression and all these things and it just really like feel bad for her and you know we do the this stuff to a lot of celebrities and some of them like deserve it you know you know like the whole kardashian clan like i i really think that they're just a bunch of nothings and don't really contribute anything to society other than them wanting to be famous but you know a lot of these stars that just 
they want to do their thing and then they get torn apart for every little thing that they that they do like like a Britney Spears you know she was uh, the like I guess is it princess or queen of pop like you know she was she dominated her era in the early 2000s and you know the the sex appeal and all that stuff like really played a factor into her in how the media portrayed her but you really got a different picture and of how everything she was going through everything that she was going through and we all knew she was in this conservatorship but we didn't know how serious of a thing it was at least like from my point of view like until i saw this thing and i was like oh wow like i really wish she could get out of this and she was finally freed this year and it's you know it's nothing but positivity now coming from her social media accounts so that's good to see i know like the whole legal aspect of it is probably not over but for the most part she's gonna i think have like a regular life again and have control of her assets and stuff like that so that was a cool thing to see in pop culture and um you know everybody rallied behind her there was a whole free britney campaign you know that was unleashed online over all social media platforms and it's great that she's finally out of that so that's my number 10 uh at number nine i've got the year of john cena uh john cena was just everywhere this year again he was in two of my top 10 movies of the year the suicide squad and um f9 the fast saga but not only was he dominating like movies and the tv world that he's gonna do right now with the peacemaker in january he was also in another um i guess i could call it like a bonus like just runner up to my top 10 uh, a movie for straight uh, on hulu which i wish would have been a theatrical run because i would have gotten some great laughs in the in the theater it was a movie called vacation friends and uh, almost made my top 10. It's right outside there. Um, really, really funny movie. Right up there with, like, the movie Blockers that he did. Uh, you know, just he has that range to be super funny. And um, not only was he, he is he starting to get so much attention in the movies and, you know, he does a lot of commercials. and uh, But he also came back to WWE and he did a little run in the late summer. So he showed up in the July pay-per-view Money in the Bank. Came out as a huge surprise at the end of the event. Crowd went crazy for him. John Cena was finally getting these huge, like, Stone Cold level reactions that we that he always hoped he would get as like the huge baby face and, and just overall poster child of the company. And he was finally in that huge baby face role. So it was nice to see John Cena come back to wrestling as well with everything that with him going on in Hollywood and him exploding and just getting a bigger name for himself. It was nice to see him come back. He did it a lot quicker than The Rock, so he already jumps up a lot of points in my eyes. And to me, John Cena's like the last of the wrestling nostalgia where like I'm okay with him coming back as a part-timer. Like, you know, if the if Stone Cold were to come back, you know, I mean, I guess I, it would it would be awesome, but also it's like he's come and gone so many times and done special appearances and you know, whatever the case may be. He's kind of run his course with me. Same thing with The Rock. Like if The Rock were to come back, and I know he wants to come back at some point to do like maybe one or a couple more matches, but that nostalgia of it does, just doesn't hit it for me anymore. So John Cena to me is like the last of it before we really get into like the next generation of like, you know, whenever CM Punk and Brian Danielson retire again and, um, you know, they come back later on to do special appearances, like that'll be like the next set of nostalgia. So to me, John Cena is the last of, of, of that era of, um, you know, wrestling past. So we're finally entering like the new age, but it would again to me this has been the complete year of John Cena and he earned it all the way through. Everything he was in this year was tremendous. So that's number nine. At number eight, 
I got the double debut of Brian Danielson and Adam Cole at the all out pay-per-view from AEW. Um, we know Adam Cole and Brian Danielson were in WWE earlier this year and they were, their contracts were up. So with Brian Danielson, it was a little bit of, uh, well, what's going to happen, right? Like the, he hasn't resigned. He's, he let it expire. I think it was like right after WrestleMania. So this was like in early April. He was written off television. We didn't know what he was going to do. And then there was a story that came out like in July, like mid July that he was in talks with showing up in AEW. It was just a matter of when it was going to happen. And Brian Danielson is somebody who got a second chance to come back and do wrestling. He retired, I believe, in like 2015 or 14. And, you know, he was just doing like character work in WWE. He wasn't really a wrestler. Then he got to come back in 2018. I got to see his comeback match at WrestleMania that year. And they just could have done so much great stuff here with this guy who's just one of the most over characters in the history of wrestling. Always has the crowd eating out of the palm of his hand. And WWE just ruined, I think, his second run here. Like, they could have made him a top guy, but I don't know. They're set in their ways. And, yes, he was champion again for a while, but as a villain. But you got a strong baby face there, like a hero that can drive the company. And I can't believe, like, they blew their shot with that. And we know Danielson has, like, a lot of goals to still do as far as, like, wrestling-wise. So when that contract came up, it's like, oh, man, if he shows up in AEW... He could hook up with like Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks and do all these like incredible things with everybody that's over there. Like they got a nice young roster that he could work with and bring out the best with and mentor and just have all these incredible matches. So when that story popped up in July, I was like, oh, hell yeah. I definitely want to see him go there and and hook up with just all these different wrestlers and have all these sorts of matchups. Adam Cole was also another one that WWE let slip through their fingers. And although Adam Cole never was on the main roster of like a Raw or SmackDown, he was like the cornerstone of NXT, like the third, like kind of like indie brand of that company where they're like, they're on television, but they're not on the main shows. So it was always kind of like the, like the minor leagues, I guess, of WWE, but really not like they, they have good characters and good wrestlers there. Now it's kind of like minor league and, and, and the way it's, they've reshaped that show, but. The NXT, when it was going strong, Adam Cole was at the head of that. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but it just let it fall through the cracks that Adam Cole's contract was coming up, I believe, like at the end of July earlier this year, and just nobody knew it was happening. And I think they were trying their best to pitch him to stay, but, you know, what what good was there for him to, to, to latch on to? WWE has been in such a downward spiral he is a smaller guy, and we know how WWE treats you know smaller guys. They really, other than Shawn Michaels, like who else? Other, you know, Brian, Brian Danielson had his moment in WWE, but it was just a, a small moment for the most part. WWE always goes with the bigger guys, and I think had he stayed in WWE, I don't think he really would have had a chance on Raw or SmackDown. Now we know he has the talent and he has the charisma and he can talk on the mic. But it's all about the booking and the creative, and I just think they would have hindered him, and they would have made him just like, you know, a complete nothing on those main shows. So then there was rumblings of him going to AEW, and when was he going to show up? So you had all these uh, great wrestlers with contracts expiring and them, 
you know, rumors of them jumping ship. And we thought they were going to, like, spread the love, right? Like, we'll have Adam Cole show up on a pay-per-view here. And then Brian Danielson in their huge stadium show that they're going to do in September. They're going to want to jam-pack that arena. But, no, they did an incredible thing here at their all-out pay-per-view after the end of the Kenny Omega and Christian Cage championship match where the elite and everybody are beating up on, on Christian Cage and the Jurassic Express and then, you know, the lights go out and then Adam Cole's new music hits. Everybody loses their mind. He comes out like to this huge baby face roar. And, uh, I was watching this event with, uh, with fellow, you know, co-hosts, Brandon McLaughlin and Ryder Rodriguez, just friends of the show. And, you know, we were watching that live and we were, we were all losing our shit when he showed up. And, uh, he comes out. You think he's going to be this huge, like, hero to save. Uh, Christian Cage and the Jurassic Express and everybody else. But no, he turns right away and joins up with the Elite, the Young Bucks, and Kenny Omega. And you think it's going to go off air like that with the villains on top. And then all of a sudden, like, Brian Danielson music's hit, music hits. And it's kind of like a little rendition of the song he had in WWE, but it's just, it's a, it's got its own flavor to it. And it was just this great double debut. And Danielson comes out and they all clean house, all the good guys. You know, get rid of the elite, including Adam Cole, who's now joined up with them. And it was just this awesome, unforgettable double debut and just one of the greatest wrestling pay-per-views ever put on by a company that hasn't even been in existence for five years. Like this is barely, they're barely like on year three and they're already like the top promotion in professional wrestling, at least in my opinion. Like we know WWE's the big dog by name only, but if you look deep in in its core like there's just so much wrong with WWE in terms of creative in terms of presentation like everything that you want out of professional wrestling like you can see where everybody's going and 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 what they're doing over there it, it's just really special so yeah the double debuts of Brian Danielson and Adam Cole are definitely top 10 so that's uh number 8 at number 7 uh, this is going to be a surprising one for you on something I haven't really talked about on this show at all. And that's the reignited uh, romantic uh, relationship between Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. Benifer 2.0. Now, for those of you that follow pop culture and, you know, are kind of my age, right? A lot of the younger kids won't know this stuff. But back like in the early 2000s, you know, at the height of when Ben Affleck was becoming a huge movie star... He started to date Jennifer Lopez, and Jennifer Lopez had kind of like, you know, she's dated a lot of major superstars, but for some reason when her and Ben Affleck got together, it turned into like this huge media firestorm, and they were followed around everywhere for every little thing. And, you know, it was a it was a pro and a con for me. Pro because he's my favorite actor, and him getting all this notoriety and, and spotlight is like, yeah, give me all the Ben Affleck stuff. And he's doing all these movies, right? And it's, it's, his career is going great. But then there was just all this behind the scenes stuff. And then eventually they stopped dating. And by the time, like when they broke up, um, you know, their careers were at least Affleck's was really spiraling down in terms of movies. It got into a lot of stinkers and, you know, just was panned by the critics, was made fun of by the public. And, you know, Ben Affleck kind of went, went away for a while. So that kind of sucked for me. So that was the con part of it. But a little part of me always wanted them to end up together. I think they're a good couple and, um, you know, just that high quality, like power couple. 
Uh, I don't know. That's a weird thing to root for, but I mean, I guess it's my favorite actor, so I'm okay with it. And then, you know, Ben Affleck has had his up, up and downs through his career. You know, he had his resurgence after, after that, you know, he went away for a while. And then it wasn't until like late 2006, 2007, came back up slowly, started doing directorial stuff, and then eventually got his Oscar for Argo. And, you know, he made the comeback complete and, you know, proved himself as a director, uh, as an actor again, doing serious stuff. Um, and, and again, it's just been up and down. He's done all these different things, but for the most part, like Ben Affleck's had a, uh, a great second half of his career. And I think it was either earlier this year or late last year where, you know, the picture started showing up of him and Jennifer Lopez, like meeting up again. And, and now I think they're just full on. I think they're just dating again. I did a, a meme of them where they were at a Lakers game and I've done a couple of memes with their pictures involved. And, you know, it's, it's funny stuff, but it's nice to see them again rekindle their relationship and it's not the media firestorm that it is now but then again there's just so much going on in the world now and everybody has access to everyone you know back in the early 2000s like we had you know our cable news shows our entertainment shows and that was it like the internet wasn't as huge back then so of course they always dominated television and headlines and all that stuff but now there's just access to everybody so them getting away with their relationship now and them not everyone being on their every single move is easier. So we'll see what's to come of it. You know, maybe Ben will settle down and get remarried again and they can live happily ever after or not, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm not rooting for it as hard as I was like in the early two thousands, but you know, I won't be mad at it if they end up together, like and get married. So that, that that's, you know, go Ben Affleck. You know, I, I wish him nothing but the best in his professional life and in his personal life because he's he's battled a lot of demons so when stuff goes right for him i i i I really root for that so (laughs) that's a that's a big pop culture moment for me uh okay so at number seven no six i got the mcu debuting on streaming this year on disney plus So all the Marvel shows, that was a talk. Like, how are they going to do this? How are they going to transition a lot of these characters from the movies to the smaller screen? Is it going to work? Like, what's it going to be like? We saw Star Wars do it, right, with The Mandalorian. And, you know, they kind of like, it had a very cinematic feel to it. So they made that work. And it's, uh, you know, one of the most popular shows on Disney+. And they did a great job with it. It's had two seasons, and it's now getting a spinoff with Boba Fett. So they're doing great stuff there. I enjoy The Mandalorian. It's a fun show. We'll see what it is, minus that Baby Yoda stuff. But hopefully it'll be a better show now. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to poke fun at that, but whatever. Um, but, yes, how is the MCU going to translate onto your television screens? Like, Because, you know, the MCU, for as big as it had gotten, and the biggest I think it's ever going to get with Avengers Endgame, like, it's like, what's next? How are they, how they going to move forward, and what's the next phase? So we had WandaVision at the beginning of the year, which was a huge, like, popular streaming title because, again, we're right at the heart of the pandemic. We're stuck at home. We're looking for stuff to watch. You know, nobody's really going out to the movie theaters, so we need something to grab our attention. And I remember watching those early episodes and staying up. And I did for the most part for most of these shows. Staying up till 2 in the morning to see when those episodes drop. And sometimes it would be hard to get into the uh, to the actual app to watch because everybody was trying to watch it. So um, WandaVision started off cool and interesting. It was, uh, 
you know, very like Twin Peaks vibe, like just weird stuff going on, kind of spooky. But then it eventually developed into like the typical like MCU stuff, and that show kind of fizzled out for me. But it was what it was. Then came the Falcon and Winter Soldier not too long after. And this one I thought was a, you know, I mean, I mentioned this about the Hawkeye show. Like, I wasn't really excited for a a continuation on the story of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier who were, you know, supporting characters in, in the Captain America movies. But, you know, I'll go with it. I'll watch it. And for the most part, the series was just there. There were some bright spots like, you know, uh, Zemo returning, played by Daniel Bruhl, who gave that show like a lot of personality. Probably the best part of it. But, you know, this could have been a movie. Uh, really, for the most part, you look at it, it was only six episodes. I think WandaVision was like eight or something like that. So was, that one was a little bit longer. Uh, so that one was kind of worthy of being a television show. Um, but Falcon and Winter Soldier just felt like a movie just broken up into parts. Because literally episodes would pick up right from where the previous episode uh had left off so it felt like a movie same thing for hawkeye but hawkeye worked because it really dived into more character stuff uh at least in my opinion um so that one was whatever then they announced they were going to make a captain america 4 which was going to focus on sam wilson earning the shield but i'm like that's what the whole fucking show is about like what are you talking about like that's what the movie's going to be about like that feels kind of redundant, but maybe that was maybe I misheard or misinterpreted what that movie is going to be. But anyways, it was whatever. Then came Loki, and that one was an interesting one. That one got a little bit more deep into the character that Tom Hiddleston played, and you know he had been just like a a douchebag character, a villain for the most part in these MCU movies, but here he had to kind of step into the the babyface role, the good guy role. And he had a lot of stuff to learn as a, as a person and him bouncing off Owen Wilson in the show was one of the best parts of it. And in fact, it made the entire show like just their dynamic and their interaction and their philosophies was really great. And then towards the end of it, it got really out there with, you know, rumblings of the multiverse and, you know, who's really controlling everything. So there, there's a lot of interesting elements there where I'm like, okay, cool. Like they can go in a whole lot of different directions here for uh, multiple seasons and it was the first show that got of the mcu shows to get renewed for season two like for wandavision and uh falcon and winter soldier they were more like mini series like where there's not going to be another season it was just a that little set of episodes and that's it then came what if didn't finish that one i only saw the first episode which i did like but you know the animated stuff and everybody's told me to go back and watch it I'm sure I will in the grand scheme of things whenever I have to really recap on everything. Um, but right now, it's not on my radar, and it's it's just whatever it passed. Then we had Hawkeye, which was a great cap to the year. And just really great character development on Jeremy Renner and the introductions of Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, which they did a tremendous job with only six episodes and... They made her a full-fledged character and made her very uh, likable and very somebody that you could root for and want to see in future installments of whether it be a movie or another season of the show. Hawkeye, they kind of left it open-ended where they could end it there and that character can go on to the movies or they can do another season and do like another little mini adventure. Uh, But this one also had development on the Florence Pugh character of uh, Elena and she's the you know, sister to Natasha Romanoff's Black Widow. 
at least in terms of story, like not really by blood, but just more like as a you know spy family. If you saw the Black Widow movie, they they explain more there. But there, her character was so dense and not really developed that it was. I kind of felt it was a letdown. But the moment she shows up here in Hawkeye, and they get into more of her story and what happened to her post the Thanos snap, it gets really interesting real quick. And they kind of make her more of the kind of like the one-liner, just the the slapstick of the show. But she makes it fucking work. And she's so hilarious in this. And her interactions with Kate Bishop, it's like they're going to be the new Black Widow and Hawkeye. Like, that's the future going forward. And they set that up and they build it up perfectly here. So... Now I want to see what they're going to do in future, whether it be a team up in the next like Avengers or wherever they show up. Like I want to see them interact again, and I'm sure they're going to come to, you know, be team uh, partners or whatever because they they did it so perfectly in the show. Like they set that up perfectly. There's no way that these two aren't going to interact again. There was a reason why they had them like bounce off of each other. Like this was true buddy cop like lethal weapon because even Kate Bishop's interaction with Jerry, Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton. We're also like that buddy cop, like opposites attract, like type of uh, personalities here, bouncing off each other. Like it was so good. Like this is this is what Falcon and Winter Soldier really should have been, but they decided to go like really deep and dark with that stuff. And it was kind of like a turnoff. It's like let's get back to the lightheartedness. Let's get back to what makes the MCU fun. Is like these like movies that can these stories that can be like serious, but also bring in that humor to balance it out. You know, like an Ant-Man or like the Iron Man movies where like they get serious, but also like they know how to balance the the humor. And I think Hawkeye was a perfect balance of all of that stuff. And to me, it made it the best Marvel show of everything that's come out. So I think for the most part, they did a good job of transitioning this stuff into TV. Like they got the budgets for it. So like when you're watching these on Disney Plus, like it doesn't look like. You know, it's not a CW show, right? Where you could tell they have a budget and they don't have like the money to do effects and stuff. Like this is full on. They got full like movie budgets to do these episodes, and I think that's probably why they only do so little of them is because the budget is so big. You know, they can't you know expand it over like a ten, twelve episode kind of thing. Like you really have to make it as long as like a movie, but break it up into parts. So I'll give them like a B plus for the stuff that they debut debuted this year. But the stuff that really put it over the top was was Hawkeye, which I loved from beginning to end. Like that was like must see viewing for me. Like I I'm at like must see viewing for me is like where like I'm anticipating. Like I can't wait to see what next week week's episode brings, as opposed to like you know Falcon and Winter Soldier. Where it's like oh there's a new episode I'll, I'll get to it. No, this was like I have to see it. And WandaVision was like that for the first couple of episodes where it's like oh man what's gonna happen next? What's gonna happen next? And then it's like oh, you turn into the same trope of what a lot of these third-act MCU movies fall into. It's like the same stuff. So that fizzled out. But I'll give them a B+. B plus. You know, they really... They dominated early in the landscape of uh, being in the conversation where everybody was talking about WandaVision. You know, people were talking about Falcon and Winter Soldier. Loki, for the most part, kind of, until Black Widow showed up in the theaters. And I know not a lot of people have been talking about Hawkeye, and it's going to go under the radar. Like, I think this is a show where people are going to eventually uh, come back to it. And they're going to talk about it. And it's going to be like, where were you? Like, when we were all talking about it. At least me, anyways. Um, but, yeah, not, with Spider-Man out right now, that's the big talk. But Hawkeye is just 
so good. It's developed some new characters moving forward, not focusing entirely on the past or what's come before. It's about moving the story forward. And they got two stars in Florence Pugh and Haley Steinfeld that are just going to drive these new characters forward. So MCU, part of the pop culture bubble, and will continue to be. Um, speaking of Spider-Man, that's the next one on my list. Uh, I'm not going to go in too much into this because, again, I got a pod coming up with Brandon McLaughlin. McLaughlin. We're going to go into all of this. But it's Andrew Garfield and Tommy McGuire. Uh, sorry to spoil it for those that haven't seen the movie. Their return in Spider-Man No Way Home. There's so much to dive in there, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. I'll just say that. That's my number four. It was a big deal in the lead-up to it from everybody. I didn't so much put all my eggs in the basket for it, but when it happens on screen, you're like, this is this is pretty fucking cool. So that's uh, that's my number five. At number four was the uh, the reuniting of the Friends cast. So they did a huge special on HBO Max, which they were supposed to film and do this like right before the pandemic started. But once the pandemic got into full blown effect, they like kind of like dropped it and we didn't know if we were ever going to get it or they were going to get together. But they announced it like a year prior, I think to what we got it like earlier this year, right? I think it was like March or April when we got it, maybe May. Um, so a year before they, they put out the teaser that they were going to get back together and, you know, it was actually going to get done. So there was a lot of buildup for this. You know, Friends is one of my favorite television shows like of all time. And these, this cast hasn't really been together all in one setting in a very long time. Now they kind of did a little mini reunion like a couple of years before this, but I believe Matthew Perry wasn't able to, to attend because he was filming a play overseas. So this is going to be the first time all of them were going to be back together. And it's like, what was it going to be? Like, is it going to be like a an episode of the show, like where their characters are now? Or is it just going to be like a behind the scenes thing? And they did a lot of cool, like different things. So they had pretty much the sets recreated, like the apartment, Monica and Rachel's apartment, Central Perk, the setup there, uh, you know, Joey and Chandler's apartment. And, you know, they have the actors, like, just, you know, recreate scenes. Like, they do table reads of, of certain scripts and, you know, just reminiscing about all these different things. Like, a cool story of when Matt LeBlanc, who plays Joey, gets injured while they're filming an episode and a backstory on that. Just a bunch of stories. And a lot of people, they bring in, like, the creators and talking about the backstory. And it was, like, this huge, like, two-hour special, I believe it was, or close to it. And it was just... It was nice to see them all interact to get together again and you know they get emotional and all that stuff but it, it was a it was a nice special I know a lot of people wanted it to be like where their characters are at now but you know what I think they ended the series perfectly and to just continue that on like you know like Lisa Kudrow said who plays Phoebe she said it's not up to us you know it's up to the creators and the creators ended the story beautifully you know who are they to question what their character should be doing now or you know where they're at in their life now like it's fun to speculate but the series ended where it needed to and they moved on with their life so i I like that touch when they talked about that but you know they did a lot of cool things it wasn't all filmed at once it looks like they did all these different settings and you know they did q a's with with uh audience members and stuff like that so i thought it was a really well done special 
Uh, I saw it a couple of times when it aired. I'll have to go back and revisit it at some point, you know, because I'm always watching Friends <laughs> for the most part. My my daughters are into it, so they're always rewatching the series, and they were super hyped earlier this year for the reunion. So, um, you know, I, I, I like I get to enjoy it twice because of them. So. Uh, this show, it, it, I think it's a timeless show, and it's going to keep going on and on. The show ended in 2004, and it's still as popular as ever. It's it's on every channel for the most part, every night. So that goes to show how how much Friends has stayed in the pop culture bubble. Um, at number three, Tom Brady winning his seventh Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I've said this plenty of times. I've always been my NFC team. This was before Brady. You know, this was before, you know, I, I was I was a fan when, you know, Tony Dungy used to be uh, the coach for the team. You know, I met John Gruden. You know, I have family that lives out there in Tampa. You know, I've, I've visited the stadium. I've gone to my first NFL game was a Tampa Bay Buccaneers game. You know, I'm a huge, I'm a Patriots fan first and foremost. But I always have a soft spot for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because of my family that lives over there. So, you know, I have that connection because of them. And I've met players uh, from that organization. You know, my family members have met team team members from from, from that uh, organization. So uh, we, have, we have a strong connection to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So they've always been considered my second team. Even though, like, everyone's like, oh, the you're bandwagoning. You're, you can only have one team. Well, you know what? I'm the greatest fan of all time, the G-Fote. I'm allowed to have two teams. So I've always had the Buccaneers on the side. I have all this proof of it. I have their Super Bowl recording uh, on a VHS. Like, this just goes to show. Like, people say, oh, you, you bandwagoning only because Brady showed up. Nah. I've been a fan since before. So when Brady uh, hit the free agent market, uh, I believe it was in 2019, um, yeah, it's just incredible how he ended up on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's like the football gods took care of me. Like, I think I would have cheered him wherever he went, except maybe if he was a Dallas Cowboy. I think I would have been like, you know what? You know, we had a good run in New England. You know, you, you brought us all these championships, and you've done so much for this organization. But I wish you nothing but the best, but I can't root for you if you're a Dallas Cowboy. Um, so I think anywhere else, like, I would have been like, I would have cheered him on. But not as strongly as I do because he ended up on the Tampa Bay Bucks, like the other team that I cheer for. Like how perfect is that? Like that worked out so well for me in my fandom. And, you know, only one other quarterback had won a Super Bowl with a different team, and that was Peyton Manning. But Peyton Manning, it took like the second season to do it. Tom Brady does it in his first year in a whole new system after being on another team for almost 20 years. And he's got all these new receivers that he's working with. He brought Rob Gronkowski with him from New England. So that was like his only really security blanket. Other than that, he's working with a whole new cast, whole new set of coaches, different weather environments. You know, you go from, you know, Boston down to Florida. We're in the heat where actually Brady hasn't really been good. If you, if you followed his career, he's always struggled in like whenever he plays like the Miami Dolphins. So. Was that going to work out? And we're also in a pandemic, so there was no, like, off-season workouts or training or all that stuff. So Brady was doing, like, these these workouts, these private workouts, you know, in secret, you know, trying to get ready for the season. But there was never any official, like, off-season because of COVID. And then the season starts, and there's no, 
crowds or whatever. I think by the end of the season, there was like a little bit of crowds here and there, but it wasn't like full on packed stadiums. So it was going to be interesting. And it was a bumpy ride for the first, you know, half of that season. And then it wasn't until they got like beat up by Kansas City uh, later in that season that they really turned things around and really dug deep. And it's just that leadership from Brady that brought that whole team together. And they made this incredible run all the way to that Super Bowl, beating Drew Brees and and Aaron Rodgers and Peyton and, and Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl, the guy that they had crowned the next greatest of all time already. The guy that they said, oh, this guy's going to win seven, eight Super Bowls just like Brady. And it's like, what? How are you crowning this guy when you got still the greatest of all time playing at a high level? And he beats the guy who's supposed to like already be greater than him. So that was just incredible cherry on top. You know, Tom Brady's the greatest ever, right? But he comes to a new team, outdoes what Peyton Manning did. You know, Brady just continues to up Peyton Manning in every single way, and I love it, and I'm super petty when it comes to that, but whatever. So he does it with my second favorite team, and he does it in a pandemic where he doesn't have, he has everything going against him, right? Because he's not familiar with the other teams like everybody else. Like everybody else, for the most part, stayed, like all the top quarterbacks, like they didn't lose anything, right? Because they're with the same teams. Tom Brady had to, start from scratch and he freaking wins the super bowl year one like i don't think you could get any better than that so that's an amazing pop culture moment number two comes at the end of cobra kai season three and uh there had been this whole build up between daniel larusso and johnny lawrence and them battling back and forth between these first couple of seasons you know Good guy versus bad guy, bad guy versus good guy. The roles switching, flip-flopping around. A lot of gray area. It's not so much black and white as the movies made it out to be. So you're really getting some character development from uh, Johnny Lawrence and Daniel LaRusso. John Kreese comes back into the story, you know, mixes things up, makes things like miserable for both of these guys. And it comes to a breaking point at the end of season three where Johnny Lawrence and Daniel LaRusso have to team up because for the greater good because they have a bigger enemy. And season three ends with them uniting both of their dojos together. And they do this incredible like bowing of respect towards each other. And it's set to the song uh, In the Air Tonight. I forgot who the band is that sings it. It's like a rendition of it. And it's one of the most powerful and like greatest scenes of television that I've ever seen with like these two characters who have like for the most part hated each other in their however many year history right because this is the karate kid is from like 30 plus years ago and in the show they make it seem like till this day like they still like kind of like have ill feelings towards each other and they come together in this incredible moment at the end of that season and season four is about to drop at the end of the year so I mean, it's just, I want to see where the story goes from there, but it was a great cap to that season and something I never thought I would see is them teaming up together at the end. And it's just, if you just search on Netflix or search on YouTube, if you don't have Netflix and search Cobra Kai season three, final scene, and just watch it play out. It's beautifully done. The music's perfect. The setting's perfect. And you know, two these two guys coming together to team up, it's freaking awesome. Gives me goosebumps just talking about it. And then number one, 
for my top 10 uh, pop culture moments of 2021. And that is the return of CM Punk to professional wrestling. So in the same breath when I mentioned that Daniel Bryan or Bryan Danielson was going to be in talks to show up in AEW at some point, there was another bigger story that was brewing around that same time. And it was broken by the same person that I follow, uh, Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful.com. Follow him. He's, he's great with all that stuff. He broke a story in the middle of July that there was talks of CM Punk returning to professional wrestling. And CM Punk has been gone for over seven years now. You know, he left WWE in 2014, you know, had a bitter end with them and it ended ugly. Punk did this tell-all podcast of everything that happened backstage in WWE leading to his departure. And just, you know, CM Punk stated that he hated wrestling and just didn't want to come back to it. And, um, you know, he tried different things. Like, I think he went to dip his toe in UFC. It didn't work out there, but at least he fucking went for it. Like, he tried it out. Like, you got to give him credit for that. Like, you know, half of things in life is just trying it out and going for it, right? Like, that's, like, if you do that, like, that, (laughs) how can you consider yourself a failure? Like, you went for it. Like, I don't consider consider that failure. That's just learning. Um, So... And all these years pass by and pass by and pass by. And it's like every time they ask him about wrestling, it's like, ah, oh, he's done with wrestling. He's never coming back. Ever, ever, ever. But, you know, the diehard fans, including myself, have that little linger of hope. Like, man, one day, like, he's got to come back, right? Because it's never say never in wrestling. That's the way it's always been forever and ever and ever. You never say never. The, we've seen everybody come back. Um and then the emergence of AEW comes, and it's like this is the perfect spot for CM Punk to go to. It's a, it's another brand, it's another brand with national TV. So they they're on TNT. They're going to be exposed to the national audience. You got all these up and comers, including some veterans like a Jericho, and you know all these different cats, and and they're building up their roster, and it's gaining momentum and gaining momentum, and doing all these great things. So when this story comes out, it's like. Well, this makes all the sense. This is like the right time to come back because everything's falling into place for you to come back to wrestling in a in a point where you can do all these great things. So they announce on an episode of AEW television, they're going to have this uh, live show of our – they were debuting a, a second show at this point. So AEW up until that point early in 2021 only had the – the one show on Wednesday night on TNT Dynamite. Uh, they revealed a second show called Rampage. It's going to air on Friday nights. And it was going to be a taped show, right? Because it's only one hour. It's not two hours like a Raw or SmackDown. So one hour show, like, yeah, just tape it after your Wednesday night show and then you air it on Friday. But they announced this show was going to be in Chicago. And it was going to be live. And it was going to be in a huge arena. In the United Center, where the Chicago Bulls play. And it's like, well, why would you announce a show like that? And, you know, in Chicago, that's where CM Punk is from. Why would you announce that and have him not debut there? It was just so weird, like, to do that. No, AEW, in the lead-up to that, never mentioned CM Punk by name. Uh, There was chance from the crowd that the television crews would catch and they would pay attention to it there was 
alluding from different wrestlers on that roster, saying stuff that would hint at CM Punk, like saying things like best in the world or, you know, whatever. And it's like, oh, man, like he's coming back, but they're not going to say it like they want you to tune in. And in hindsight, CM Punk wanted it this way. He wanted it to be like the worst kept secret, like where everybody knew that he's going to debut there. Like it's just, it's just, uh, like you don't announce that show. He's not going to show up in a huge building like that and not deliver. So finally, when that show airs on Friday night and I watch this live, usually nowadays in wrestling, the DVR is like helps a lot because you can forward through the commercials. So for the most part, I'll usually wait for shows to, finish airing or either i'm at work and i'll watch afterwards but this show i remember i worked early that day so i was going to be able to watch it live and i never watch anything live when it comes to the wrestling shows anymore unless it's a pay-per-view it, it has to be cm punk right whole crowd is sold like they sold out that show super quickly right like within seconds that building sold out all without like not even announcing him only with the rumor of him possibly appearing but again, I also tempered my expectations. Like, I've been let down before, but this was just so many obvious things where it's like they threw it way out there. They wanted you to know that it's going to be him without ever really telling you by name. So that show starts. Crowd is shouting like crazy for him. And you figure, like, are they going to wait for the end of the show to do this thing? Is it going to be like a last minute thing where he pops up, then it goes off air? No, Tony Khan, the the CEO and just like the overall guy that runs everything there, starts off this show by hitting his music, uh, Cult of Personality by Living Color, which he had used in WWE, but they got they they have the rights to it and they bought the rights to it. And that band has always said like if CM Punk you ever want to use it as your entrance music, it's yours. That song hits, the crowd just loses it. I lost it watching this live. A lot of friends that I've talked to that watch wrestling just lost their shit. It was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in wrestling. I think just in terms of ovation, in terms of being in the moment, it was just so incredible. To see. And then when you see him finally come out, it's like, holy shit. It was like a huge like void in our wrestling lives was filled by the return of CM Punk. Like That brought so much joy back to us. For those of us that had been missing him for so long, and it's like, uh, I don't know how to how to compare this. It's like, you know, it's like, let's say we didn't have Batman for so long, right? You had him, like, all this time, and, like, not that you took him for granted, but, like, you had him weekly and all that stuff. And then he goes away for a long time, and you're like, man, like, he's just such a big part of, of the community, the pop culture community, and, you know, just presence and icon and brand. And then when he finally shows up years later, it's like, oh, man, like, this is what we had been missing this whole time. I guess that's the only comparison I could make. But anyways, it's this huge, like, like almost 10-minute, like, intro of him coming out. And he's crying at the top of the stage because he didn't know how he was going to be received by the fans. Would, would fans care? Would they remember? It's been, like, seven years, and... Being gone for that long in wrestling is a huge deal, right? You could be easily forgotten. And it was just the greatest thing I've ever seen from audience reaction uh, to them ch chanting his name over his music. Like, that's how loud that that 
that pop was for him. And then he gets to do like this whole spiel in the ring talking about why he went away and how he had to heal mentally and all that stuff before he would come back to wrestling. You know, he needed to cleanse himself. And I totally related to all of that because I had been at my job for so long and had been worn down like completely physically and mentally. And I took a break from it and I went away from it for an extended period of time. And then when I came back, I just felt like a whole sense of like new purpose. So I totally felt that with CM Punk and it was genuine. And it was just as, it was the best piece of wrestling television I'd ever seen in my life. And I know that's probably like, you could probably say, oh, you're prisoner of the moment, but there's only a few moments in wrestling like that really capture the imagination of just this incredible aura. And just this out-of-body experience. And that CM Punk thing. And I may be just over-exaggerating this. But to me, that's what I felt. That moment. And I watched, I've watched, i watched that video like so many times on my DVR. Like I replayed that over and over again. And I hadn't done that in a very long time with stuff in wrestling. Like there's a few things I'd watch back here and there. But this is like I was watching. I, I had to have watched it at least a hundred times during that weekend of just his entire entrance and 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 soaking that all in and and knowing like we were gonna have cm punk back in wrestling and he's gonna wrestle again and we never thought it was gonna happen even though we had that little glimmer of hope but usually that stuff doesn't pay off after somebody's gone that long but we're seeing it now and he's been back in wrestling since september and he's doing all this incredible stuff already and he hasn't even really gotten started like it's it's been little things here and there. He's done a couple of matches. He's finally getting into a real feud. And we're just we're not even at the tip of what I think he's still capable of doing as far as like a character. So this was just like the best thing ever to happen in wrestling. And it just brought a lot of the joy back and a lot of the just whole reason why I fell in love with wrestling in the first place. Like he's the guy of this generation, right? In my eyes, right? So you had your your Steve Austin, you had your John Cena, or even you go back to the 80s, you had your Hulk Hogan's and your Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. For this generation, it's CM Punk and Brian Danielson. Like, those are the guys. I think those are the guys. And they're now both in AEW. So that's, that's an incredible thing. And it all happened in 2021. Like, who would have thought, right? And I can't wait to see what 2022 ha- brings for these guys. But especially CM Punk. I want to see, is he going to go after the world title again? Will he be a world champion again? Will they strap the belt on him and just shoot him to the moon and beyond? Like, we know he's a big star. Like, in WWE, like, he he was the guy. He could have been the guy. The company could have pushed him as the guy. But they never wanted him to be the guy. But we know he can do it. Like, we all know in our heart, like, he has... The entire package to do it all. And just with that entire building selling out. Just at the thought of him possibly appearing. That's fucking superstar. If I've ever seen one. So that's number one. On my top 10 pop culture moments in 2021. And now let's uh, let's keep it on wrestling. Let's shift real quickly to um, my top 10 favorite wrestling matches of the year. Now, I haven't done so much wrestling this year on this show just because, you know, 
I've been super invested in AEW all year for sure. WWE, I've been in and out of. They've had a couple of good stuff, but for the most part, that their television product is horrible to watch. Like it's barely like. For the most part, it, it, I fast forward through a lot of it. It's a real quick watch. Um, like for WWE, for me, when it comes to Monday Night Raw, I really only watch Becky Lynch on SmackDown. For the most part, it's just the women. Although they're, you know, I, I love Kevin Owens, I love Finn Balor, I love AJ Styles, but their stuff is like not intriguing enough. At least on the women's side, like they've been the best part of WWE for the longest time, and I've said that on multiple episodes how they're the best thing about wwe and the only thing that's really kept it going so i'll watch becky lynch stuff sasha banks you know the up-and-comers you know nxt's i think got a a stronger developmental as far as like the women so like they got people i would love to see on the main roster at some point dakota kai uh they got a newcomer cora jade she's she's gonna be a superstar um so that stuff I will watch on main WWE television programming. The other stuff, like, it depends on what it is. But for the most part, I fast forward through it. AEW, on the other hand, since the arrival of CM Punk and Brian Danielson and Adam Cole, um, that thing is just must, must watch every single week. Now, I've been keeping up with AEW every single week. But ever since they arrived, like, almost now every single week, the entire two hours is completely watchable, like, Everything from beginning to end is incredible. You're left at the end of it like wanting more, right? And that's that's what you want in your wrestling show, right? You want you want to be left hanging so that way you tune in to whatever the next show is, whether it be the Rampage show on Friday or the week after that on Dynamite. Even if you don't watch uh, the Rampage show, which it is a watchable show, don't get me wrong, but even if you don't watch that, like you don't lose a beat because they're pretty good at letting you know what's going on story-wise and not and not even with like video packages just in the commentary and the storytelling they're just so good at keeping you up to date with everything that's going on and they plant seeds for stuff and they pay stuff off and they let stories build and they let characters grow like this is everything that we want we wanted professional wrestling to be and AEW is hitting the mark on it i mean i won't say everything there's some stuff that they you know flub on but that's that's anything, right? Like, nothing's perfect. But, like, I'll say, like, 95% of it is, like, incredible to watch week to week. It's not a chore watch. It's like, oh, shit. I said I put it every week on Facebook. It's And it, it was a thing from Brody Lee who passed away. God rest his soul. He would always say, whatever day it was, like, but it's become the tagline for that show. It's Wednesday. You know what that means? AEW Dynamite is on tonight. What's going to happen? What's what adventures? What stories are we going to get involved in? And uh, yeah, so it's it's completely night and day. But uh, I would love to talk about AEW more. And I think probably in twenty twenty two, I'll I'll get better at doing like preview shows for their pay per view events. Now they're not like WWE right now, so they only have four events in the year where they actually do pay per view. Now they do smaller events on on their television shows uh in the weeks leading up to like the pay-per-views and stuff like that like in between right when there's downtime um so it's not like wwe where they're going on pay-per-view every single month and even wwe is kind of like chopped down on their on their doing pay-per-views monthly you know because it kind of becomes overkill like i think after the royal rumble 
this upcoming year in January. Like, there's nothing until WrestleMania in April, I think. So they're going to have a whole gap of nothing going on. So they're kind of like going back to basics and, and seeing what works. And what AEW is doing right now is working tremendously. So, uh, yeah, but here's my top 10 matches of the year of 2021. And this is coming from both companies. There was a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Like I mentioned the bad stuff about WWE, but they, they got some bright spots in here and it's showing up on this list. So at number 10, I've got from the all out pay per view. It's the AEW tag team championship steel cage match between the Lucha Bros and the Young Bucks. Um, now, I'm the first one to state on record that I am not the biggest fan of the Young Bucks. I think they're super dorky and just like, I don't know, they, I think they crowned themselves like the, they, they, I feel like they've crowned themselves the goats of tag team wrestling without, you know, others doing it for them. Like they consider themselves the greatest, like, and don't get me wrong, they're great wrestlers and stuff, but as characters, I think they're whatever. Right now, like, they're playing villains, but even when they play villains, it's, like, not believable, and it seems like, you know, they're... I don't want to take this page out of Jim Cornette, but, like, pretending to play wrestlers as far as, like, a character villain, like, I just don't buy it when they're bad guys. Um, But I can't deny, like, their in-ring talent. Like, it's so good. And uh, usually steel cage matches aren't good with tag team wrestling. Like, you know, you're confined right there in the ring with the with the cage around you. So there's only so much you can do. But when you got the young bucks who are like high flyers and do all these crazy moves and you got the Lucha brothers who bring that style and you know, they always have good matches with the young bucks. Like they had a ladder match at that same pay-per-view event. I think a couple years prior, which I still haven't seen to this day. And I've only seen like the highlights of it and it looked incredible. So I was like, what are they going to do in a steel cage match? And they freaking delivered big time. Like this was probably I don't know if it was the best match of the night, probably to a lot of fans there and probably a lot of people on the internet. Uh, me personally, it was other stuff, but that just because of story and build up. but I'll give the young bucks credit here. Like this was one of the best steel cage matches I've ever seen. And, and that's, you know, whether it be tag team or single, uh, it was just an overall great cage match. A lot of like fun stuff happening, a lot of innovative, creative ways to work with the cage and do all these different moves and, uh, it was a, a real coming out party for the Lucha Brothers because they had been chasing the tag team titles for so long and the Young Bucks had been like squeaking by wins throughout uh, most of uh, 2021. So this event took place in September and uh, they finally like another team got the best of them and, and they lost the belts in just what I thought was a classic. And uh, again, I'll give them their props. Just a great overall steel cage match. Crowd completely buying into and eating up everything. Of course, they were in Chicago, and that's one of the best wrestling crowds you're ever gonna see. And uh, it was just it was a great match. At number nine, this one is from NXT Takeover 36. Now, before AEW arrived and started putting on all these amazing shows. It was NXT and their little pay-per-view events that would steal like the wrestling spotlight. And it was the place to have all these top-notch matches. But ever since AEW arrived and NXT had kind of become a little stale. But every now and then you'll get a match where it's like, whoa, this is like just on a whole other level from what's going on on the actual show. And that's what we got at NXT TakeOver 36. 
for the NXT UK Championship. It's Walter defending the title against Ila Dragunov. And in a series of matches that they had already been having on the NXT UK show, which I don't watch. It's a, it's a brand that takes place overseas. Yes, it's got the WWE brand name and the NXT on it, but for the most part, like, I don't watch, I don't, I don't know who the wrestlers are on that show. It's just, they rarely interact with anything that's going on, uh, on the American side of things. Like, I mean, no offense to like the European and, and all those wrestlers over there, but it's just rare when those shows like have crossover. And when they showed that this match was going to happen on here, they had this thing called um, Prime Target where they sh- they they go in on a certain feud and they highlight all of it. So I saw the lead up and the history of this match. Now, while WWE does a lot of production videos, uh, and while they sometimes it's overkill, but they're also like the best at it. So when they do a good one and it stands out, like it could really sell you on a match. And the one for this Dragonoff. Walter match really sold me and I was like man I really want to see this match I think it's going to be like just out of this world and it ends up being out of this world and then some and it was just this awesome match by like these two guys that I'm not really familiar with but yet I'm like on the edge of my seat watching these guys tear each other and chop each other to shit like Walter's known for giving like these massive like heavy chops because he's like a big guy right so when a big guy chops you, like you hear it and you feel it. And this guy Dragonov is like kind of like pale skin, so like he's completely red on the chest and all that stuff. It was just one of the best wrestling matches I've ever seen. And this guy Walter had been holding that UK championship for like 500 plus days, and it's like, is this guy ever gonna get beaten? And you see this guy that he's fighting, like this Dragonov kid, and he's like, he's scrawny and you know. Not like, uh, I mean, I'm not saying like he's a nothing, but I mean, I'm sure he works out on that stuff, but his presentation is kind of like, he's like a, maybe a little bit smaller than, than Brian Danielson in terms of stature, not in height, but like in stature, and you're like this, there's no way this guy is going to take the title off this guy, but you see like him stand toe to toe with him and fight him like hard. And it's like, oh shit. Like it's totally believable. Like in the way he's fighting him in style that, that he could, he could pull the upset here, and he ends up beating him for the championship at that event, and it was just incredible. And not only beats him, he makes him submit. Like, that's that's an ultimate win for a wrestler, right? If you can get the other person to tap out, like, that's awesome. So this was one of the best matches I've ever seen. Why it's not higher, I'm not sure. Um, really, a lot of these matches could go back and forth. Really, I'm only confident in my top three, so this could easily be number four or five. And the only reason it's not higher is just because, you know, depending on my taste on that day, you know, I could be into like something like I want a gimmick or this day I want to see more grappling or this time maybe I want to see some high flying. You know, it just varies. Like I, I, I can get into all these different styles, but it just depending on, on the day that I that I'm watching it. And that day when I was watching that matchup, it was like that was exactly what I wanted out of a professional wrestling match. So that was number nine. At number eight, it's a, it was a no rules match from AEW Dynamite. And it was part of the five labors of Jericho. And it was a series of matches that Chris Jericho had to win, uh, in order to fight, uh, MJF, who was his big rival at the time. So 
it was announced like a week prior. Again, everything was set up like weeks before, so it wasn't just matches out of nowhere. That Chris Jericho was going to have to face a guy named Nick Gage, who's not on the AEW roster. He's from another company called GCW. But what AEW has done is do a lot of cross-promotion with other wrestling companies other than WWE. So they're kind of doing like the little MCU thing, the Marvel Cinematic Universe Bringing that into wrestling where you can bring in other wrestlers from other promotions and and do cross-promotional matchups. And it makes it more interesting. So this guy, Nick Gage, is more famous in the independent circuit. But he's famous for doing, like, these death matches. These, like, horrible, like, violent matches where, like, he'll really mess you up. Like, he'll take a pizza cutter and, like, cut open your face, like, for real. So it's like, oh, shit. Jericho's, like, already pushing like past 50 and he's still performing like at a top level maybe not like physically in the ring but like character wise and promos like he could still go in the ring but like promos and all that stuff he's still like one of the best in the game and it's like how is he gonna mix with this guy who's like total death match total like i'm gonna hurt you and i'm like kind of like feeling sorry for jericho from a physical standpoint because i'm like man if he injures him pretty bad like he could and his career. So they have this match on Dynamite. And it's this awesome no rules match. And I'm all for like gimmick matches. But sometimes it gets to be too much. But here it was just like out of this world different. Because we rarely see Jericho and stuff like this. And, you know he's getting cut up. Like I mentioned the pizza cutter. So they do this thing. Where he puts the pizza cutter over Jericho's face. And he bloodies him up. And they got into trouble. Because during this match. They do like a picture in picture. Like, hey, we're going to commercial, but don't worry. The the action's going to go on on the side. And they're doing this pizza cutter thing. And literally the first commercial that pops up is an ad for Domino's Pizza. And Domino's, I think, completely got so pissed off about this that they complained to TNT. And I think TNT gave them a warning to, like, never do something like that again. I know they won't because they're still in the infancy stage. So they want to stay in the good graces of DNT. So, um... But anyways, all these badass things are happening. You know, Jericho's getting light bulbs uh, broken on his back. Uh, Jericho does like a, a Hurricane Rana from the top rope to Nick Cage all the way to Nick Gage. I'm sorry, I said Nick Cage. Uh, Nick Gage, and he throws him into like a a plate of glass. It's just so wacky, so hardcore. And again, depending on overkill, like they can do these matches so many times and it's like, ugh. Like, enough of this. Like, do it every once in a while. So I hadn't seen a match like this in a very long time. So it was fresh for me. And it was wild. It was hardcore. It was badass. Jericho wins, of course. And he continues on and ended up facing MJF later that year. But this was one of the... This was probably the biggest match in terms of that whole run in the lead-up to his fight with MJF. Was, could he get past this Nick Gage guy? And this match just over-delivered in every single way for me. Um, At number seven is another... Walter match, who I just talked about, who had that incredible fight with Eli Dragunov. Um, another NXT match. This is from NXT Stand and Deliver. Uh, and just like WrestleMania, they made it a two-night event. So this was from night one of Stand and Deliver. And it was for the NXT UK Championship. Again, this was earlier in his run from that year. Um, Tommaso Ciampa was the challenger. And again, it was just, you know, David versus Goliath. Um, Dragunov was more 
it was more believable in his stature and him fighting Walter. Tommaso Ciampa was more played like the smaller guy and was getting thrown around and all this stuff, but really brought the fight to him in a really standout match. It went underrated because there was a lot of other stuff that happened on that show that they made a bigger deal out of. But this was a match that went completely under the radar, and it was early on in that show. So, But it stood out for me. It was one of the best matches of the year, and that's why I have it at number seven. At number six, I'm a stickler for triple threat matches. When in the right atmosphere and you got the right three wrestlers, you can create something magical. Now, to me, the best triple threat match in history is uh, The Rock versus The Undertaker versus Kurt Angle from WWE Vengeance 2002. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up on YouTube and you'll see, like, that's exactly what I want out of a triple threat match. And, excuse me, we got close to that at Double or Nothing for AEW, which was a, in a, a pay-per-view event from May. And it was Kenny Omega defending the AEW Championship against Pac and Orange Cassidy. Now, these are guys that are, can fly around and do all these different, like, sort of, like, just high-flying maneuvers. And mixing with the style of Omega, who can do that stuff, but is also more, like, just really heavy-hitting and, like, does all these, like, power moves. And it really made for a very fun triple threat match, and it was very highly entertaining. It wasn't even the main, or was it the main event of the show? No, it wasn't the main event of the show. It was, like, the co-main event. But it was such a, a fine-tuned triple threat match. And usually these matches, like, go, like, with two guys and the other guy being down for a while. And then, you know, they flip-flop back and forth. But here it was, like, all three going at it. And it was just very action-packed and just so fun. It had a schmoz finish. But I'm okay with that because it's serving the purpose of the character who, you know, at the time Kenny Omega was just really growing into this heel character and being the this coward heel champion. So him sneaking away a win or cheating to get it is, like, perfect. So it worked for the match. Didn't take away from any of the other guys. They were really, like, awesome in the match. And they're still strong characters to this day. Like, they're still building them up. So that just goes to show you, like, just the, the star power uh, of Kenny Omega and how he's able to help develop these guys. And uh, they were put in a main event spot where, you know, in the other company, they probably wouldn't get this opportunity. But they get to here in AEW because uh, they're given the opportunity and they believe in them and they deliver. This was a fun match. So it was probably the best match on the show, in my opinion. At number five is from Survivor Series of this year in November. Uh, Becky Lynch versus Charlotte Flair, the Raw Women's Champion versus the SmackDown Women's Champion. Now, usually this event for the last couple of years, it's been kind of whatever, the Raw versus SmackDown, like, battle for brand supremacy. Like, nobody really cares about it because there's just, just no stakes in it and they don't really make it a point to make it a big deal. But what made this match interesting was the fact that there was actually legitimate heat behind this match. And it all stemmed from an episode of SmackDown where they were going to swap belts. So Becky and Charlotte, while both being champions, were actually champions on opposite shows. So Charlotte was the Raw Women's Champion, but she got drafted to SmackDown. And Becky Lynch was the SmackDown Women's Champion, but she got drafted to Raw. 
So instead of like unifying the belts or doing a match or whatever, WWE has done this thing. They did it last year where they just have the, the people swap the belts and then it just starts a whole new reign, which I think is silly. You know, when you really think about it, it's like, why don't you have them fight for it or, or unify it or whatever, like put some actual stakes on it. So they did this whole thing, right? This whole belt swap thing. And apparently there was this thing that Becky Lynch was supposed to do. And again, this is reading from backstage sources and the dirt sheets. And, you know, it could be right. It could be wrong. But whatever. This was a consensus that we heard from everywhere. Was that Becky Lynch was supposed to get handed the belt. And she's supposed to put it up. Like, hold them both up. Like, she's the double champion. She's Becky two belts. Like, she's the one that started all that. Well, apparently Charlotte Flair didn't like this idea and didn't want to go through with it. So by the time they actually get out and do that segment, Charlotte Flair actually kind of goes rogue and doesn't really hand Becky Lynch the belt and like just drops it, which is really like a sign of disrespect and just really going against what the script had been written for that segment. So anyways, they get into this huge, huge fight backstage verbally and all that stuff. Like they almost come to blows like big time, like for real, like. We're not talking in storyline anymore. We're talking like the real people, Rebecca Quinn and Ashley Flair, like just going at it. Like they have like just disdain for each other. Like ever since Becky Lynch ascended to the top, like their friendship has never been the same. Like they used to be the closest of friends. So there's like legitimate heat here. Like they don't like each other. They don't want to work with each other and they're going to do this match. Like how is it? I mean, there was just real hype going into this and it was the only thing I was excited for. It's like, man, something, like, could really happen here. Could they, like, really, like, give some, you know, real shots and, you know, take shots and, you know, cheap shots, whatever the case may be. And uh, so they do the match, you know, the professionals. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, it's very physical. It's very, like, just them hard-hitting and it's going back and forth, back and forth. But it looks like a legit fight. Like, they're not really doing the standard WWE choreographed style type of match where it's like, <coughs> excuse me. It's not like your standard choreographed match. It's just like, it's just a straight up fight. So it's more believable. And that's, that's when I think wrestling is at its very best is when the line is blurred is like, is this real or is this like scripted? And I think you, like you can only get that in pro wrestling, right? Can't get it in the movies. Cause you know, it's all filmed and it's all fake. You can hear the backstage drama or whatever, like in a behind the scenes documentary or whatever. But when wrestling's live and in your face, like you don't know if these people really hate each other or if it's they're just like putting on a good face or good acting or whatever. But here, when you're hearing the rumblings about Becky and Charlotte backstage, and then you see it kind of playing out in the match, it's like, well, are they working us or are they legit? like in disdain of each other so that's the beauty of professional wrestling that's when i think it's when it's at its absolute best and i think these two women showcase that and they had and it opened the show like i thought this was going to be the main event and should have been the main event but you know wwe has weird booking and you know if they were on the other uh brand like that match would have been headlined it would have been you know marketed as the biggest like match uh in the company's history like that's how that's how I really looked at this. This was really like a, a big time match. And it opened up the show, but it was still awesome. I think it went for like 30 minutes. And it was, again, just heavy hitting. You know, you could see it in their expressions, like that 
like there was this real tension and angst there. And I think they pulled it off really well. One of the best matches that WWE has done in a very, very long time. But not the best one that they did this year. That'll come up in a couple of moments in my next uh, number down this list. So at number four, it's CM Punk versus Darby Allen from AEW All Out. This was the first match for CM Punk since returning to professional wrestling. So a lot of intrigue there. Does he still have it? Is he out of shape? Is he going to be able to hang with a youngster like a Darby Allen who's up and coming, who's in his early 20s? I think Punk's in his late 40s already or mid 40s, whatever. Um, not saying that Punk's not in his prime, but, you know, kind of a little out of the prime. So let's see if he's still got it. And folks, he's still got it. <laughs> this match was like old school. It was very, it was an homage to, uh, if you're a diehard wrestling fan, you'll know this reference. Bret Hart versus the one, two, three kid on Monday Night Raw, where it was like the old guard versus the, the new kid on the block. And it's just this them testing of styles. And it's not one of those fast-paced like wrestling matches that you're used to seeing these days, a la like the Young Bucks and Adam Cole and these guys flying around and just, you know, maneuver after maneuver after maneuver and counter after counter after counter and no one really selling. Here it's like old school, like CM Punk selling for Darby Allen and doing these moves and, you know, these hard-hitting moves. And it's just a straight-up great professional wrestling match. No interference. Who's the better man? It ends up in a victory for CM Punk in his first match back in seven years. But just CM Punk helps elevate Darby Allen in the process and goes to show the world that he still got it. And again, we're not even with Punk a year back yet. Not even like six months. And he's already doing like incredible stuff. So there's just nothing but great stuff on the horizon for CM Punk. And this was a great start for him at All Out at number four. At number three was the best match that WWE has put together all year. And it was their main event of night one of WrestleMania 37. And it was for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Now, we've already had the women main event WrestleMania for the first time ever a couple years ago with Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair and Ronda Rousey. And that was like, I mean, it was it was a fun match. I mean, a little overhyped. Like, the story was probably better in the lead up to it than what the actual match ended up being now the opposite happened here where Bianca Belair versus Sasha Banks you got the up and comer so Bianca Belair had just moved up from NXT but she's like so talented and so athletic they were just it was just a matter of time before she was going to be like in a main event of something so the story for this one was kind of weird and kind of like just wacky in the lead up to it but that's been WWE's problem for the last, like, I don't know, decade plus uh, of just just bad storytelling. But then they can sell you on the video package to kind of, like, hide all the bad booking and make it look more epic than what it actually is. But this is where the match delivered better than what the story was, as opposed to the, the first women's main event where it was all the story, but then the match was kind of just like whatever. No, here it was... Bianca Belair and Sasha Banks at the top of their game. Sasha Banks is so good at, and she's very underrated too. Like everybody talks about Charlotte and Becky. And of course, Becky grew bigger in terms of like mainstream, but like Sasha Banks is like the Eddie Guerrero. Like, and that's one of her mentors, right? But she's like the, 
just the constant hard worker and she's going to like do what she can to steal the show in terms of wrestling style. And Bianca Belair is super strong and athletic and their their styles meshed so perfectly in such a beautiful main event and this story that they told with this match. And again, I'm glad that they got to main event and it was the best match of that entire weekend uh, and headlined by these two women who absolutely earned that main event spot. Maybe not story-wise, but you look at the characters and who they are, like they definitely earned the main event spot. So that's my number three. It was the best match that WWE has put on in a very long time. And it so happened to be at WrestleMania where magical stuff like that happens. And they had a magical match that night in Tampa. At number two, this was on the AW Dynamite Grand Slam episode where they were in the Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens, New York, or Brooklyn, or somewhere near there. Uh, huge, like, tennis-like stadium. The Probably the biggest arena that AEW has run since starting that promotion. Like, they're still young. They don't run the big arenas like WWE does, even though they could because they actually do outsell them in live events. And actually, even recently, WWE... And AEW ran the same building like one week, uh, you know, apart from each other. And AEW actually sold more tickets in WWE, but uh, so they they could do the bigger arenas, but I don't know. Maybe WWE's got contracts, and you know, there's probably something along the lines of like if you let AEW come and run this building, like we'll never come back here. So, you know, WWE's got that big dog power where they can get away with doing that. But only for so long until AEW continues to ascend and grows in the years to come, which with the way they're going, looks like they're going to grow as a company. But anyways, um, this Arthur Ashe Stadium, completely unique venue. You know, they're in the New York area. They could have easily ran Madison Square Garden or Barclays Center or whatever. But they ran this this arena. You could fit in a bunch of people. I think it was like 20,000 plus that they fit in here. Biggest crowd that they've done to date. And it's like, we're going to need a big match, right? Obviously, you had CM Punk, but, you know, he had his stuff going on with, uh, I forgot who he fought on that show. Who's the world champion Kenny Omega going to fight? Who's, like, one of these first dream matches that you can really get away with doing, like, on, on television? And it, like, not really, like, spoiling, like, oh, we could do this on pay-per-view. Well, it's Brian Danielson, right? Like, <laughs> the best wrestler other than Kenny Omega, right? Like that's like the the his equal. It's like this is the perfect setting for them to have their first matchup. And they have this incredible like 30-minute draw, right? It ends in a draw, but whatever. Like the match was so good. Like everybody's eating everything up. It's incredible. Um yeah, like I can't wait to see these guys hook up again. I know Kenny Omega was the villain in this feud. And now Brian Danielson is kind of filling that villain role right now. Like Kenny Omega's away. But I can't wait to see these guys lock up again. And uh, it doesn't have to be for the championship. Uh, that's just how good they are. They've kind of like transcended. They're, they're bigger than the championship belt. Like they could just fight one-on-one for like, you know, ego rights. And it's it's worth it. But it's, this was the best match that AEW has done so far. In terms of wrestling styles. Now we'll see like down the line if, you know, I want to see Kenny Omega versus CM Punk. And then we'll see what's what. 
But we all know, like, Brian Danielson right now is just, like, he's the best fucking wrestler in the world right now. Like, I love Kenny Omega. He's number two, but Brian Danielson is just out of this world right now. And, like, he's just on such a roll ever since he's come into AW. Like, he has match after match after match. And it doesn't matter who it is. Like, the match is freaking good. So, the day where he doesn't have a good match, it's, it's to- totally going to be because of the other guy, not him. Because like, we all know how good Brian Danielson is. And on this night with Omega and Danielson, it was just magic for 30 minutes. And then it ended in the draw. So we don't know who quite the winner is yet. But they'll meet again eventually. And I can't wait. And then number one is a, a female wrestler who has really ascended. And she ascended during the pandemic uh, in 2020. So she really started to develop a character and get comfortable in her own skin and, and realize who she was and who she wanted to be. And that's uh, Britt Baker playing the character of the dentist, which she is in, in real life. She's got two jobs. She's a professional dentist and she's a professional wrestler. So she mixed those two into this just egomaniacal, like arrogant character. But she's so good on the mic and she's like, She's continuing to develop as a wrestler as well. But she's established like such an amazing character that she's just gotten all this momentum. And where that really started to really take shape was in this match that she does. And it's against a Latina wrestler named Thunder Rosa. She's actually from the San Antonio area. Uh, They had this like lights out match. And what a lights out match is really like a match that's really like unsanctioned. It doesn't count. On the records, what AEW does here in, in this um, bro- program and brand as opposed to WWE is like they actually have like wins and losses records. So they actually have rankings. They, they kind of treat it like a sport, but it's also like not really a sport, Like, but it's there to make you, you know, care about people that win and lose. Like everything means something in AEW, right? It's not like WWE where somebody will lose, but it doesn't mean anything. Like they'll still be in the title picture or whatever. So that's what a lights out match. It's a match that just doesn't count on the record. And it's just kind of like, you know, you, you, it's basically no holds barred. You can do whatever you want. And they main evented this episode of Dynamite. It was during St. Patrick's Day. And this was before crowds were back fully. So you had a couple of people in the audience. But it was mostly like wrestlers and you know, probably family members or whatever. And they're doing like this hardcore style match. And we've seen, like, the women do, like, hardcore matches. Even in WWE, we've seen it, right? We've seen them do, like, TLC matches and stuff. But nothing really, like, hardcore where they're, like, bleeding. Because WWE really doesn't do blood anymore. Unless it's by accident where it happens. But here in AEW, uh, they play with a TV-14 rating. So they can go to that extreme if they wanted to. And these two women just beat the shit out of each other in this match. And they're the perfect, like, counterparts to each other. So they're like a, imagine a Rock Austin or a Hogan Savage or whatever, where it's just like the perfect foe. And that's who Thunder Rosa is for Britt Baker. Britt Baker's like the villain, and Thunder Rosa is more like the babyface good guy. But everybody's cheering Britt Baker because her momentum is so strong and her character is so, like, she's despicable and, like, arrogant, but, like, it's kind of like, the thing about her that's like attractive and why you like her like because she's like that she's she's awesome and she backs it up 
she loses his match. But she does so much great stuff in it that she actually becomes like the bigger star coming out of it. Like, no offense to Thunder Rosa, she's really great. But the one who ascends from this match is actually the loser, and it's Britt Baker. And she ends up going to win the world title like a couple months later. And even to this day, she's still like the AEW Women's Champion. And I see no signs of her slowing down. Like, she just, every time she's on TV, it's electric. It's almost like, it's almost like The Rock or even CM Punk. Where it's like, if she's got a mic in her hand, like, you want to hear, like, what she has to say. Because everything matters. And then when she's in the ring, she just continuously gets better. Like, I don't even consider, she's not even the best women's wrestler. But, you know, it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, it does. But she's got her character so, like, down to the core of what it is. That that's what you need to be a superstar. Like, yes, having the wrestling is great and all. But if you have the total package, you have the look, you have the mic skills, you have the personality, like you're going to go places and she's like the best thing in this company. Um, and I say that with a CM Punk and a Brian Danielson and all these other great talent that's around. And I still think she's the best part of this company. Um, and, and, she, and I hope she just continues to get better, you know, because once she does like get better in the ring, she's just going to be like unstoppable. And, you know, and she's still young, so she can only continue to get better. So I can't wait to see what's on the horizon for her. But, yeah, to me, that was the best wrestling match of this year just because of how it elevated her, how, like, innovative it was and how progressive it was for for the women in AEW who up to that point hadn't really been featured in the main event. But this was the main event of the show, and it, it got a lot of people talking. It was, you know, it was rated highly by a lot of people, including myself. Like, just, again, it's number one on my list. So, you know, there's that. Britt Baker, just the best thing in wrestling right now. So, but we'll see. 2022 is going to be very, very interesting for a lot of people that I that I like. Her, CM Punk, Brian Danielson. Uh, MJF continues to ascend. Just there's just so much. Adam Cole, like God bless. AEW is just so good. Um, can't wait to see what happens in 2022. The the matches for 2022 are just going to be, I think, out of this world. So we'll see. That's the hope, right? But that's what AEW is giving us is a lot of good hope as wrestling fans. Like they're giving us what we want, and it's it's refreshing to see a company do that as opposed to. The other company, even though I'll be a wrestling fan overall for life, but WWE just sometimes likes to do stuff just to piss off the audience. And why do you want to piss off your fan base? Like just every once in a while, I'm not saying all the time, but every once in a while, just pay it off and let, let your stories have like happy endings or give your good guys like, (laughs) just let them get the one up on the villain. Like it seems like every single time in WWE, the trope is to get the bad guy over. So that way you can have heat is what what the insiders call it, right? Because if the heel continuously beats up the good guy, beats up the good guy, like that makes you want to root for them more. But it actually does the opposite and it makes you like, it really drowns you down. And AW does the opposite. Or like, yes, the villains come out on top every once in a while, but they always get theirs in the end. And that's just simple pro wrestling. Like the bad guy does bad guy stuff and then the hero overcomes at some point. It's basic storytelling. 
And I think that's the the very underrated thing about AEW is how they just do all these incredible things with simple storytelling. It's not complicated. But that's my uh that's my top ten wrestling matches of the year. Um haven't talked a lot of wrestling on this show. This is probably the most I've done in a very long time, but gets my juices going and I promise to do a lot better in terms of getting more shows out there about wrestling, especially AEW because they're just firing on all cylinders. I've been going on for so long already. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to cap it off here. This has been the top tens of 2021. My voice is starting to give out. Um, You can follow this podcast on Spotify. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. If you've heard all the way through this, I appreciate it so much. Follow me on Spotify. Search Palace Off the Top Rope. Hit that follow button. I greatly appreciate it. I do share this podcast link through all my social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram through podbean.com. You can download the app. You can listen on your phone. You can listen on your Apple iPhone if you're an Apple person. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave me that five-star review. Leave me constructive criticism, good or bad. I'll take it either way because I'm putting my voice out there in the world. And, yep, a lot of fun stuff to come as we wrap up the year. And then 2022 is just no rest for the weary. I've got a lot of stuff to watch and um, movies, TV, wrestling. Um, but then, of course, next week, again, next week, the SM football marks will return. Um, I've got Brandon McLaughlin to talk Spider-Man No Way Home. I've got Paco Torres to talk The Matrix, Resurrections. Uh, and then I got my special guest to cap off the season finale, season two finale of the 90s films turn 30 as we celebrate the year 1991 and we close in on starting to celebrate 1992. But that's going to do it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I greatly appreciate it so much. God bless you. Take care.